Hello and welcome to The Matrix, a lock-in in this case at the Crate and Crowbar. Uh, that's right, uh, we're recording this on the 2nd of February 2022. That's a lot of twos. What does that mean? Uh, my name is Chris Thurston and joining me are Jamie Britton. Hello. And Graham Smith. Hello. Welcome to the desert of the real. <laughs> <laughs> You see, if you talk about the desert, the real too long, you end up at Oasis and we don't want to go there. Not yet. <laughs> we want to stay in the Matrix. Um, but what we're going to be discussing in, in this week's lock-in is obviously uh, the the Matrix Resurrections, the fourth Matrix film, which came out in December 2021. Been out long enough now for a lot of people to see it. But we are uh, sensitive as ever and to the statute of limitations on spoilers. So we're going to give a, a fairly clear uh, indication of when... To, to switch off if you don't want any spoilers for the new film. Uh, before we get to that, we're going to discuss the other films, the rest of the series, um, and, and, and what it means to us individually, um, and presumably collectively, just through the medium of talking. I don't need to explain that any more than I already have. Um, so I say this at the top, spoilers for the original Three Matrix films, probably incoming fairly soon. If you care about that, maybe just stop now. There's, there's the two-layer spoiler warning to, to stick in front of this. But we should really jump right into it. Uh, I've been really looking forward to talking about The Matrix with you both. Um, it's a subject very dear to my heart. But let's let's kick off with maybe going around the circle and, and telling the class how what what does The Matrix mean to you, Graham? <laughs> um, so I came to the first Matrix movie via the DVD. So probably around, mm. I think the movie came out in 99. I don't know if the DVD was later that year or 2000. So I would have been 14 or 15 years old when I first saw it. And it was my favorite film when I was that age. I remember when I joined PC Gamer, which wasn't that long after that, to be honest, because I was 20 years old when I joined PC Gamer in 2005. Everyone who worked on the mag felt like their definitive kind of teenage movie was either Aliens or Terminator or Terminator 2, mm. like, you know, one of those two series. And it felt like The Matrix was the equivalent for me and maybe my generation. I don't know. I don't want to make so yeah. many generalizations, but it felt like a similar thing in that it's a, it was an action movie with um, unique visuals and uh, it just absolutely entranced me when I first saw it. And I remember like I watched that film again and again, like I didn't normally do that even at that age with films, but I watched the first matrix film like 30 times on DVD wore that disc out watching it again and again and watching the special features on it and that sort of stuff. Um, and really, really loved it for a bunch of reasons. For a bunch of reasons that, like, that film is good, which I don't think hold true <laughs> for the fourth one, which we'll come back to later. Um, but, yeah, and then when the when the sequels came out, when Reloaded and Resurrections came out, I went to the cinema to see them and had complicated feelings about them that have uh, become more positive over time, I would say. Um, but before before we start digging in too much in, into depth, like uh, what what was your experience with the series, Jamie? So um, I remember seeing uh, a clip of The Matrix on. I think it was still Barry Norman when he did the film program, or it might have switched over to Jonathan Ross. But I remember there was a, like a rundown round about Christmas or something of like you know exciting films next year, and it was a whole bunch of 
movies coming out in 1999, dramas and stuff like that. And I think I just remember them showing a few seconds of The Matrix, uh, a clip, uh, which was someone, you know, diving out from behind cover and the camera, it's time freezing in the camera going around them as it does. And it really like broke my brain in the most delicious way. Just this tiny little clip on the TV. I was just like, what the absolute hell is that? It was uh, so exciting just to see that moment because it did feel like they'd slightly broken a dimension. (laughs) Um, Mm. And then I saw the film at the cinema with like me and I think all of my friends (laughs) at the time, it seemed. I remember we snuck in a huge... Uh, like crate of tiny cola bottles because they were on offer at the shop. And <laughs> we were, people were getting cross with us because we were opening them all with bottle openers and passing them between us. And my mate, Will, who was my be- my best mate at the time, uh, and he he was sitting next to me, he was wearing a big pair of combat trousers, which had lots of Velcro on them, and he kept undoing the Velcro because he was getting really hot. I also remember that. Um, I don't know why I told you that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was very vivid. And then we came out of the movie just like in slow motion, firing imaginary guns at each other like that scene in space, you know. It just felt like so, so cool. <laughs> just so cool. The fact that it had just gone to credits to, you know, Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine, who who were all of our favourite bands at the time, you know. We didn't know that was coming and we didn't know what was going to be in the movie. They kept everything secret. You know, you didn't know that The Matrix was about a simulated reality that was all really well sort of hidden by the marketing and stuff like that and so yeah I uh, I was just walking on air and it was just such a bolt of energy um but also kind of had a well-meaning kind of vibe to it which I think kind of really lifts you up you know you're kind of walking on air when you're walking out of the cinema see Um, that's that's the first thing I disagree with. <laughs> like, I don't think the first film has a well-meaning vibe in a lot of ways. Uh, it's it's super nihilistic in a lot of ways. But Chris, let's return to you. What was yeah. your experience with the series? So mine's quite similar to yours, Graham, but with like a few, maybe a few key differences, which is, so I also saw the first one on DVD, rented DVD or VHS. I can't remember which now. I think it was VHS actually. Um, um when it came out having been aware of it but not seen it but being you know increasingly even at that age um i will have been i guess 12 or 13 by the time i saw it um increasingly plugged in to the internet as a child um and then like you i also saw uh the the sequels in the cinema with my friends at the time who all loathed them and i had mixed feelings about them that also like you have grown into uh uh, fondness and and now uh, angry defense over time. <laughs> um, um, but um, but I, I did the other thing about the frame for me is it felt like I think I quite it was obviously the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It was you know both um, technologically and I, I associated very closely emotionally with a time in my life where um, it felt like computer games were escalating at the same somewhat the same rate as movies. Um, you know it's the era of uh, you know, it's the era that spans the time between Half-Life 1 and Half-Life 2, just to dip briefly into that subject, and the sense of like virtual worlds being brought to life within the computer we had at home, and then seeing that somewhat literally literalized in the film, but also um, the sort of technology of filmmaking moving forward in this like tremendously exciting way, and that sense that things were always going to move forward at that pace. The other side of it, though, is the, the, the ideas behind it. Like, I appreciate... Graham, you just sort of like teased open the the Pandora's box of like what are the ideas in that first film, 
maybe to kind of link back into that, maybe bring it forward a little bit, a brief story. Um, I I came to the first film. Well, so I had one extremely personal relationship with the first film when I first saw it because my first uh, gamer tag was Cypher. And uh, I got that name from the Dark Angels character from Warhammer 40,000. But when there was a cipher in the movie, I spent half the movie going, I can't believe I'm in this movie. And I would stress, <laughs> I would stress that that's before um, a series of bad internet men, and we'll get back to them, made um, bald guys with goatees just like completely like, killed that look forever. Um, <laughs> at the time, I still loved Command and Conquer, and maybe that would, could be a future for me. Who knew? Um, and I'll get back to that as well. And um, uh, But the other thing is, um, so The Matrix is the last film that my dad truly adored and my, my, uh, i should stress my dad's still with us uh, thank god he just hasn't liked a film in <laughs> <laughs> and and i say that because he's never seen the sequels he did like the lord of the rings films but he loves Lord of the rings and that goes a lot deeper the, the, you know in terms of like an original cinematic event that he is connected with it was only that and it was 100 percent the ideas the 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 um, a lot of the aesthetic and the, the um, action of it is there for a reason. But like, I have this really vivid memory of not only watching it with him, watching it with him over and over again. And then my uh, very straight-laced uncle came over and my dad forced him to watch it. My nan came over and my dad <laughs> forced her to watch it. He, he loved that film so much. And one of the things that has stuck with... And then, and I don't want to turn this into a super personal thing, but it's it's a way into talking about the film's ideas, I think is uh, I rewatched all three of the original movies over Christmas prior to, to going to see the new one. And um, I was struck by, I think, not necessarily the ideas of the songs because they don't surprise me. I know what they are and and the ambivalence with which they're produced, I think, which they're presented as part of the movie. What was really struck with me is the uh, almost uh, untraceable uh, journey those ideas have been on since where the matrix exists in two states and we'll probably rely we'll get back to this when we talk about the new film one where it was really refreshing and progressive both technologically and also in terms of many of its kind of the things it foregrounded and the, the personal journeys it foregrounded particularly into the sequels and on the other it kind of armed all of the worst parts of the internet over the last 15 20 years with a vocabulary for themselves and a mm. set of metaphors that have been horribly twisted from red pills to um it's it's notion of outsiderhood and what that meant to for example the wachowskis who made it is totally different to the way they were adopted by some of the people who subsequently run with its imagery it obviously didn't invent the kind of trench-coated super cool dude but it, it utilized it in a way that I don't think you could utilize it now. And anyway, those ideas journeys have been an idea. And to kind of like put a cap on that, like, um, you know, without going too deep down this particular rabbit hole, my dad would subsequently go on to fall down a really deep internet conspiratorial set of pathways of his own. And that is an ongoing source of kind of uh, tension. And so I, I kind of think back to that film a lot as a moment of like, there was a resonance there that with a lot of different people, at a particular time that has had a very complicated journey since. And I, I find it fascinating to return to and to think of its role in my own life as a uh, very much a moment from which a lot of different pathways diverge, which is maybe a different take on its nihilism from my perspective. It was something like there's actually it is. A, I think it's a nihilistic film because it's it can be read in so many different ways that it ends up 
separating as much as it unites. And I find that kind of, if, for as, as a, um, quickly as that movie goes when you watch it now, I find it kind of uh, fascinating as a little artifact for that reason. Hopefully that wasn't all too heavy, but it, it's it's something that really anchors that film in a very particular space. It makes sense because I think, you know, there's a version of the, the kind of philosophy put forward by that movie that is very much the kind of buy-in, as the corporate people would say, for the audience, is that the basic fantasy it sells you and the thing that you can kind of enjoy with The Matrix is think, oh, but what if it's real, right? What if we really are living in a simulated reality? Um, and the Matrix posits that if we are living in a simulated reality and then you're sort of smart enough to perceive that, you can do some really sweet kung fu moves um, and, and learn to fly a helicopter in a second. You know, and it's it's that kind of, that yeah. has a nihilism to it, I think, because it's basically an idea of mastery over one's own realm purely by insight alone. And the internet is obviously very much, you know, if you go through Reddit for more than 30 seconds, you'll find people with their zingers, which they think are able to, you know, kind of, you know, the the deepest problem with those Sam Harris types is that they think that they can describe things incredibly well, incredibly easily. And the Jordan Petersons of this world, you know, and that sort of thing are are all Mm. too keen for that kind of thing. And the idea of red pilling as a social practice is almost a, you know, a, a very basic ass emblem of doing that isn't it to kind of say oh you can just have this moment where you switch to understanding things um, right and that makes you sort of hard and kick-ass and sexy <laughs> <laughs> i think it's part of a, a group of movies that came out around about that time similar to fight club basically where mm. the, uh, the message that the film is trying to communicate gets lost in amongst just how damn cool it all is and it's it's these are these are films that are made by directors that at, at that point in their careers at the very least were maybe very concerned with style maybe more than so than substance and i think like the reason the matrix film the, the first one works for me it works for me more than any of the sequels do on a pure emotional level is that i think it maps like if you if you created a venn diagram where one circle was the emotional arc of the characters and the other circle was like its action scenes, it would just be a perfect circle. Like it maps every action beat perfectly to some sort of emotional resolution for the character. Like it's essentially some sort of coming of age story for Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, obviously, but that gives all these action sequences enormous emotional power so that the, the moment when, you know, Neo self-actualizes is also the moment when he like kicks a man really hard. <laughs> like mm. those are the same thing. And so it's incredibly fulfilling as a, as a viewing experience and it makes the violence in it seem really cool and like really integral to the, the experience of self-actualizing and the, the movie around it in order to like the, the rules it constructs, like there is a scene in there that is uh, the woman in the red dress scene where like it's a training program which is specifically there to tell people in this film it is okay to kill ordinary people because as long as they're not one of us they might be one of them meaning the agents within the fiction Mm. and like that's (laughs) that's that's troubling and like for a film film series which sort of becomes about like the idea of I mean, like the the end where Neo flies away is essentially like this Superman image, but he's a Superman who is not necessarily concerned within the fiction with 
saving people on a moment-to-moment basis. And even the sequels where they start to like dismantle a lot of those ideas, um, there are just like ordinary people that in the wake of Neo flying extremely quickly are being thrown around in cars that are exploding behind him and stuff like that. But like the, the fundamental message of the film that I think gets missed and which I think the Wachowskis then spend basically the rest of their career trying to communicate in increasingly explicit ways is that um, it's love conquers all, essentially. Like mm-hmm. that's the whole point at the end of the first Matrix movie is that moment where Neo is, and we're getting deep into spoilers here, Neo is shot and killed, he flatlines, and then Trinity says you can't be dead because i was told by the oracle that i will fall in love with the one and i'm in love with you and neo comes alive and that's what gives him the strength to kick agent smith really hard and jump into his tummy and make him explode (laughs) from the inside um but like that moment of like oh it's about love that gets completely lost by you know the previous 110 minutes of isn't it really cool to kick people and isn't aren't you, you know, isn't the world bullshit? And doesn't the fact that the world is bullshit mean that technically you should be allowed to kick whoever you want? Yeah. Oh god, I want so much I want to pick into that. Because there's so for me, there's one thing I, I rewatched the films um with Pip and Pip had not seen them, including the first one. And the thing that caused uh, the whole thing to fall very flat for her is she just didn't buy the Neo Trinity relationship at all. Um <clears throat> which is something I think we're gonna have to return to a few times. Uh, but I did, and maybe I do because of my, you know, history with it, and just taking that kind of like just being in awe of the whole thing when I first watched it at a fairly young age. But for me, um, there's this line, the, the kind of this a big side of it. It's it is Love Conquers All in a way, but it's also about like the uh, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound like as pat as hell. Like it's about how those feelings are discovered in a person. Um, you know, as you say, not just self-realization, but realization of that specifically, like, you know, the kind of the, the discovery and nurturing of that feeling. And I feel like that's where, you know, if you're talking about paths diverging, when, like, um, when Morpheus opens his hands and he has the red pill and the blue pill, what he's offering Neo and what I think the Wachowskis probably believe that imagery would indicate is the kind of pathway to self-discovery and the discovery of one's feelings that sometimes gets analogized with drugs, right? Like in many different contexts, the trip, right? The white, you know, the various Alice images and so on. The trip that leads you to, that unlocks a door in your brain and lets you discover something about yourself. And what I realized subsequently, thinking about the culture that has arisen in the last 20 years, is I think a lot of people just saw a fucking amazing supplement. Like, <laughs> like Morpheus is there with like one pill. One pill lets you continue. You know, one pill uh, is just like I don't know, it's just vitamin D or something. The other one has been sold to you by a shock jockey radio DJ, um, and it contains hyper protein that will make you a big boy who can kick real hard. <laughs> and and I think that notion kind of like helps maybe thread where the power fantasy interferes with that broader point. Um, and I see this in all different ways, right? Like, you know, again, I'm going to, I'll, I'll do a big take early just to kind of get it out of the way. I think as so often with these sort of like, uh, you know, cyberpunk stories or these sorts of structures um, or the technologies that underpin them or the fictional technologies that underpin them. Um, I think you can pretty much universally, the, the, the people telling these stories are telling you, look at this, you know, well, 
the matrix very specifically is not about the matrix being a good thing right and not about the power being enjoyed within the matrix being a good thing the matrix over the course of those films unevenly takes that power and uses it to try to gesture what a better world might look like and frames that better world in certain ways with zion with with the characters there and the way they live and the way they care for one another the way they party very specifically and i think it's Hmm. important that they do um and what it isn't is a changing of the guard the story of the matrix isn't it would be better if we were in charge of the matrix and that's even not where it ends even though there's shades of that and i think about that i think about that a lot recently with recent technological things with everything from like blockchain to nfts and things where things that are framed as revolutionary which are actually just changings of the guard where you know we live in an oligarchic society and we've invented these technologies which you know uh, at their most radical allow for different oligarchs maybe and i think that's the that's the line taken from the matrix by that same mindset that any new avenue to power or any new journey of self-discovery has to be a discovery has to be um the the conclusion is 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 uh anticipated before it's discovered the conclusion has to be and that's why i deserve to be king not anything else and i think it's a that's i think that's that emotional point and the kind of the culture that creates it is the reason those films are as widely misunderstood as they are and i presume one of the reasons that the the, both the sequels and the new one um have had the response that they do because they both in their way push back against that i'm glad you brought up the dancing and the partying in in the sequels because yeah i do think that's integral so like uh, if we're we're moving on to the sequels I, i i when i first saw reloaded and revolutions in the cinema i was like oh okay they were, you know, some some interesting action sequences, and and uh, they were, you know, sort of boring in points, <laughs> and some of it made me feel uncomfortable in the way that it's very easy to make teenagers uncomfortable, um, and like spe- like specifically the the thing I said about like the, the the first Matrix film, the reason it works for me, those action sequences, all being tied to some sort of uh, emotional realization for the characters or emotional resolution for the conflict between the characters. Like that's really not the case in the Matrix Reloaded. Like the Burly Brawl, for example, which is just like a big impressive CG fight at the end of which Neo just flies away and nothing has changed. <laughs> <laughs> and like the whole fight was pointless. And that film and its sequel were just full of fights like that. And so at that point as a teenager, I was just like, oh, this isn't giving me the, the thrill that I want from the violence. Um, but I, I think, I think you know, like the... The, the weird rave scenes, which, you know, never really been to a club of any kind when I saw those films when I was oh, like 17. Yeah, when, when I've, been, I've been to clubs lots since and um, have now like an understanding and appreciation. Like I really, I really love going dancing and like uh, the, the feeling of human connection you get basically from being in essentially anonymous in a large crowd of people all dancing to the same beat together and how there is a sort of like connection to other people and that that transcends your individualism in a way um you know it makes me sound like i do lots of drugs and i absolutely don't i don't you know just from the music and the dancing i can get that and so like on those terms I think those sort of scenes are, are really important in the Matrix sequels and are part of like redressing maybe the balance of the first film to some extent, along with the stuff that it does around with like 
you, if you find out at the end of the Matrix Reloaded, and if, I, I don't want to steal your, your thunder, Chris, because I know you have lots of Matrix Reloaded thoughts, um, but like the end of that where Neo meets the architect and learns that there has been basically an infinite number of previous Matrixes and Neo always ends up back at that point and that Neo himself is essentially just another system of control and that every time Neo gets to that point, the choice he makes is to reset the matrix and reassert some status quo in order to save Zion, but still if essentially return back to normal. And the difference is that this time through, Trinity exists, and Trinity and that relationship didn't exist in previous matrices, and that's what's changed. And so, like... It starts. This, I feel like the series, as it goes on, starts to recenter or or more clearly focus on that relationship and love and connection to other people in a way that it's not the reason that the action scenes aren't so fulfilling or not wholly the reason, but makes them more interesting films, more grown up films, less adolescent films. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because <clears throat> to re- briefly return to the first movie i think it is aside from any other considerations really it is a masterpiece of pacing you know it almost like that mm. you know the fact that when you encounter an agent the only thing you can do is put your head down and run and the film kind of matches that pace uh, after a certain point and it's it's a kind of it's got a glorious sprint to the finish line which is you know kind of unparalleled really um uh <laughs> it's funny about the Matrix Reloaded because, you know, it had been being built up for so long and they did all this like extracurricular stuff. They had video games, they had the Animatrix, you know, all of which I was dead into, you know, and it kind of keyed into that. And then I think the fact that there was two movies that they'd filmed at the same time and then we're going to release them, you know, kind of a couple of years apart um, and sort of spin it out into a kind of new Star Wars, I think was the kind of, yeah. uh, you know, that's what Total Film was saying at the time, or Empire Magazine was saying, like, this is this generation's sort of Star Wars. And I remember I saw The Matrix Reloaded a week earlier than it came out, because my mate Dom worked as a projectionist at the Cribs Causeway uh, View Cinema and got us into his, like, little test screening um, on the big screen. So we had the cinema to ourselves, beers and stuff like that. And I remember watching it. And there was a certain point, I think it might have been crap CGI Neo flying through the start of the sky, and like where I realized, oh God, this is this is not what I'm here for. Because in changing that pace of the matrix, in kind of sort of extend it beyond Neo blasting off into the sky at the end of that first movie, I just thought almost everything I'd liked about it was was kind of being evaporated. And I kept thinking when I remember thinking when I was watching the Matrix Reloaded, they don't need to make him fly all the time because I always thought that the flying at the end of the first movie was kind of a metaphor, like it was like symbolic <laughs> for like him sort of taking on this new power. Um, but what they do in the Matrix Reloaded is they take everything incredibly literally. So like the fact that Neo has to jump into Agent Smith's belly to make him pop to get rid of him, that is one of the most significant events in uh, in world history in the world of the Matrix because that leads to kind of Smith becoming this sort of emancipated computer programmer. All good ideas, I have to say, but it felt very strange to me that they were taking these kind of moments and spinning them into the mythology in, in this kind of um, really earnest way, which I just kind of 
wasn't quite signed up for. Um, and I think the central idea of The Matrix Reloaded, that scene with the architect, I think is brilliant. The idea that Neo is this kind of, you know, as you say, an illusion, a, a program to give the illusion of free will, which is what The Matrix is all about. And that he's kind of stuck in this never-ending cycle um, is a great idea. But I think the film's structures and the film's the way the films are structured as, as, as a set of sequels, the relationship they have to the original movie... For me, at the time, and I won't pretend I've gone back to them very much over the years, it just seemed it seemed like I was somewhere else, you know. I found that rave scene at the time completely um, awful. <laughs> and maybe it's because I was growing up in Bristol at the time and that <laughs> kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, tribal frog uh, moon party vibe was already pretty <laughs> excruciating to me. Um, uh, I mean... I mean, Bristol is where I used to go to clubs because <laughs> I lived in Bath. So same. We've all I mean, been to clubs I'm, in Bristol. I mean, I'm the guy who wrote Skins, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. You know, God, that's, that's such a strange through line in my. Oh God, I just had a. That's a weird connection. Everything comes back to all back around. You see, so here's what I would say about it. I think I I love The Matrix Reloaded. Um, I've loved it I, and I was very uncertain about it when I first watched it and it was the uncertainty and I think but I think that's with a lot of what you're saying Jamie because for me it was the uncertainty of watching something that lived in my imagination and both been larger and smaller than this hmm. gain specificity and I believe very much the specificity can be dangerous um, and at the time I was like I didn't quite agree with every choice made I do think those those latitude films um, have a lot of Star Wars in them um and uh inherit many of the same problems with specificity and world building that star wars has had over the years as well um and, but um and so but but i still cared enough about the characters and enjoyed the set pieces enough um to have a good time with the film and was kind of intrigued enough by the way that it ended that it kind of powered me through to through revolutions uh, and I overall remained fond of the whole thing and then over time i've grown to genuinely love that movie um, because I think um, I think this sort of uncomfortable process of building something of greater specificity of intent, as Graham has said, kind of starts there. And to build on the the fight scene thing, for me, um, fighting and and to build the, the the fighting and the rave, fighting in the Matrix one, they're all dance scenes. They are all hundred percent dance scenes in the in the version of events where this is just a romance a romance film or a love story. Um, you, you know, you have like every fight has meaning because it is about pretty much about the relationship between two characters. It's Morpheus and Neo, Neo being tested by Morpheus and being tested to kind of come out of himself. And, you know, I mean, to say nothing about these films as coming out films, which obviously they very much almost also are. Then you have uh, the lobby scene, which is like practically a duet between Neo and Trinity. It's kind of like if you don't kind of if you're not probably not going to get the love story from the dialogue in that film tremendously, but you can get it from that. You have um, Neo versus Smith, which has tons of drama because it's uh, it's the test of him as the one. It's the it's the test of the theory that agents are unstoppable and so on, all the way through to the end of the film, and it's all really satisfying, like as a dance movie, pretty much. Like look at the role of music in this, and then after that point. There's this decision that gets made, I think, which is that in The Matrix, Neo doesn't get to dance anymore. He just doesn't. Um, all of the fight scenes that he is in, including the Burly Brawl, are kind of one-sided and perfunctory feeling, like the kind of the the 
like the the destination that those dancers are intended to take him in, like it's a ballet, have already been reached. I do think there are good fight scenes in that film uh, for other characters. I think both Trinity and and Morpheus get good fight scenes in that film, as they do at the beginning of Evolutions as well. Um, each in both cases, the fight scenes that are good because they have some they they those characters are kind of t- continuing to tell their stories. Like Morpheus is. Um, discovering his and he's protecting the 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 key maker he's you know discovering kind of what his role is now that he's found the one as far as he's concerned and there's a lot of kind of like this there's a there's a strong air of like dad still got it to morpheus in the hmm. in reloaded that i am a big fan of and similarly trinity's sort of combination of you know um again figuring out what she's for in a post one reality uh, while also kind of making having to make that decision to be part of something she's been kept out of, right? Like, and then sort of just sort of um, uh, very much bring her in as the essential missing piece uh, that kind of makes this matrix different, etc. To the themes that that Graham uh, pointed out, and then I think it's really important that that's why that's why for me at least I can't speak to the creative intent at the time. It works so well that there's an an actual dance scene in there. Um, and specifically where it's situated, that there's this sort of literally like beating heart of actual um, humanity at the middle of the film that does feel very different and very separate to the, you know, cold, hard, cool, in both senses of the word, reality of the Matrix. And I appreciate that imagery is not, not subtle at all. But for me, it's something that the movie introduces and brings this the real like you know we don't need to do abstract dancing through slow you know heavily kind of green filtered cg land anymore we can we, we can just have people being people and dancing and kind of and shagging and, and all the rest of it in this kind of in, in, intensely mammalian way basically <laughs> i always have that feeling like that is like, it's like it's just like the all of the zion stuff is like look at our fucking raggedy cardigans look how mm. like we're like it's a sweaty fucking place. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love the. I mean, I, I, the the fashion throughout throughout all four films is great, but I love that choice basically of when you're in the Matrix, it's all leathers and yeah. plastic and PVC. When you're out of the Matrix, it's all natural fabrics. It doesn't, matter, exactly. it doesn't matter who you are. Your hair is going to look totally sweet when you're in the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone's you're got just- perfect hair in the soft image. Yeah. Even Joey Pantoliano in the first movie, <laughs> right? Yeah, and and so and then you have this kind of like deep, and this thing oh, I'm going off my reloaded brand, but anyway, so you have this you have this deep kind of like you know human like you know deep hot humanity like literally it's not the core the, the metaphor is not subtle, um, contrasted increasingly with an increasingly distant feeling matrix where some characters still have something to do with the matrix, something to prove in the matrix, and Neo kind of navigating all of this and the the uncertainty of his newfound supermanhood all of those things and then the thing i love about the film but i think the thing that probably damned it in some ways is it decides to put an additional level of spin on whatever ball it's pitching when it suddenly starts to basically with the best worst character in anything ever the merovingian um <laughs> love the merovingian. i fucking love the merovingian <laughs> but like for me this is like uh the x factor where it's like we've got a good story here we have neo kind of with a new relationship with the matrix the characters around him were forced to change because of neo neo confronting some hard truths about the matrix and his place within it what does that mean against the backdrop of true humanity and neo discovering that and what that might mean and what he has to protect and how, where does he value it and then we're going to add 
a comedy French uh, <laughs> Dracula bastard. <laughs> and, and his wife, Monica Bellucci, who has a quest for you, Neo. Give me a big kiss. <laughs> <laughs> and I love everything about this. And like, and, and to the because, because it introduces this deep vein of very uncomfortable humanity to the machines like when they go weird mm. when machines go strange they, they become very human and they're very machine like at the same time there are these strange binary reactions some of them are ghosts um one <laughs> of them implicitly might be a werewolf we don't know um the um like this one like but but there's still something machine like about them in the strangeness of their behavior then you get in the, the, the orgasm cake which like is I remember, like, the moment that scene, I realized something about it, which was that you have this, okay, this deep strand of ambiguity where you have this extended, very strange, very uncomfortable moment where the Merovingian kind of gives the little nod to a, to a waiter who delivers a piece of cake to a beautiful woman sat in his restaurant. And then she eats the cake and has an orgasm. And, and as, But the, the movie demonstrates this to you by having her kind of matrixified, turn into points of green light, uh, like a like a wireframe, uh, as the camera flies where you expect it to fly <laughs> to see the fireworks go off. God, and I, I'd it, forgotten about that. Yeah, bit. Like, yeah right, <laughs> right, when right. I, when I said I got uncomfortable at this film in ways that it was easy to make a teenager feel uncomfortable, I saw this film in the cinema with my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is the thing. I And so, like, and, and you know, yeah. But again, you think, well, that's a film with two orgasm scenes, isn't it? Uh, you've got one which is sort of kind of quivering and pink and a bit too real with, with off against the backdrop of the rave scene with Neo and Trinity, and you've got this one which is mechanical and machine-like and strange and, and, and feels, and the reason it makes you uncomfortable, I think, is it feels like it's pressing at a boundary. It's crossing this threshold of your comfort, not just with what, what you thought the film was going to be about, but what films tend to, in this genre, tend to do. It starts to get a little bit strange. And then that visual effect of like, you're just a visual motif of like, uh, you know, going into matrix vision and flying inside a woman's body recurs at the end of the film when Neo uses matrix magic mm. to reach inside Trinity, Trinity and massage her heart until it starts beating again. And the, and, and then that, that complicates the boundaries of the film the other way where suddenly the, 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 the rules of the matrix and the mechanics of the matrix are allowing something good to happen. They're allowing something that, you know, kind of beautiful to be restored, some genuine feeling to be restored. And it kind of exposes that what matters is not whether something takes place in Zion or in the matrix, but the intent and the feeling, the love that, that defines it. Um, and, uh, and there's tons of stuff in that movie that I, I love for that reason. Like the, the fate of, I've forgotten the name of the ship, but the ship that's destroyed at the end, the crew that die. It's, where, it's, it's not the Nebuchadnezzar, is it? It's it's, it's it's the Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed, but it's it's not. You know, there's three ships that go off to yeah. the Matrix. There's Niobe's ship, there's Morpheus's ship, and there's Cool Captain Disposable and the other dudes. And on their ship, there's like a series of really awesome things that again get you to push at that boundary, like the 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 bolt coming loose on the gantry that causes the person to fall that impales the operator that you know the kind of mousetrap effect of it and then when he dies when his blood starts to drip down the screen it fo it forms into rivulets that follow the code even though that doesn't make any sense <laughs> there are these layered like visual motifs they're not subtle but i fucking love them because it's that thing of like we're gonna make you feel really weird about all of it it's like the, the point mm. of that film we're gonna blur these lines so much that you 
you have to locate value in the characters and in their, you know, in their relationships with one another and identify that as the real thing rather than um, in any one of these layers that have been presented or indeed in any one of these genres that the film is kind of <laughs> operating in. It's very hard, isn't it, when when a film is about a chosen one or a series of films are about some kind of chosen Mm -hmm. one because there comes a point, like, where they they kind of decide, okay, I'm I'm the chosen one, great. And then, like, Luke Skywalker, you know, at the beginning of the third movie is basically like, I'm I'm a full-blown Jedi now. I'm I'm cool. I'm I'm, I'm above all this. And then all the film can really do is kind of, you know, pinch them on the arm and go, are you, though? Are you actually, though? Because, you know, look at you. You're getting cross with me when I'm prodding you. Um, And I think this... The, the Matrix does a pretty good job of, I would say, in the in Reloaded and Revolutions, it does a pretty good job of, of slightly circumnavigating that. Um, even though he does have to go on a spirit quest, because that seems to be a fundamental part of the hero's journey, is is kind of, you know, wallowing in the, the, the gaps in reality with ghosts and, and demons and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I, I like that, you know, that stuff kind of works okay for me i think i think it's just the 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 kind of film around those ideas is is less interesting ah watch it again i'll make everyone watch it again (laughs) (laughs) i think yeah i think it's aged quite well personally but that would yeah i think it has as well and like i think like visually it's still stunning like it lives up to the first film in terms of its cinematography some cinematography and i think it's fight choreography choreography sorry i've been drinking (laughs) so although i don't think the fight scenes work as well on an emotional level i do think a bunch of the fights actually are incredible pieces of kung fu morpheus on the um on the top of the lorry is very good well that's the one fight is great yeah that whole action sequence is the one that i think works the best but i do i do also like um neo versus the merivingians goons and yeah around this around the stairs and that sort of stuff some of the stuff during the during the highway chase as well with the ghosts in the car with Morpheus and Trinity at the same time, Trinity's driving, I think. And like the ghosts mm-hmm. are like moving between the front seat and the back seat because they can become incorporeal and move. Between those were, the, those were those twins who were on like DIY SOS or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 they are. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I was spoilers, but I was sad that they, they didn't return for resurrections. Um, <laughs> but I really like the Merovingian precisely because it is that point where it starts to muddy the water with the machines. Like the the first film re- is really compelling in the way that it sets up an us versus them narrative, where us is basically you and your four friends, <laughs> and everyone else is them. And so the Merovingian is like one of the more explicit ways in which Reloaded is like like he's a he's an exiled machine basically from a previous version of the matrix or at the very least he's a redundant machine let's say from a previous version of the matrix so he's he's no longer part of the system but he still has certain powers and he like politics his way to still existing rather than being sent to the recycle bin uh, uh, because he wants to live, <laughs> like he's he's a pro- one of the first programs you meet, or maybe the first program you meet who doesn't really have like a purpose within the system, other than I can't believe you don't think Japes is a purpose. <laughs> Do I fundamentally believe it is? <laughs> well, that's that's essentially the argument that the film is making, and I agree and appreciate. Um, whereas the the first film is is so black and white it is so didactic in what it thinks is 
the right way and the wrong way and the, the villains that it depicts including cypher for example mm. which i feel like we'll get onto more when we when we move on to the fourth film yeah i changed my uh, i changed my game attack after that. <laughs> <laughs> i would i would just to like point out i mean it, it doesn't really need to be said because it's blindingly obvious but hugo weaving is such a for me is such an enormous part of mm-hmm. of of why that first film when in particular works he's an amazing villain he works really well with um joey pants um you know the steak scene is great and i also i think maybe my favorite scene in the whole movie and i watched a bit of it before coming on here was is his scene with morpheus when he's like torturing him and yeah. his attitude he's like i want to get out of here this place is disgusting it stinks you know and i just it's just such a i don't know it's a wonderful yeah, character motivation, and he is so creepy and scary and weird and otherworldly, but like kind of human at the same time. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think he's a, an enormous part of the success of that movie because he's just a really good, a really good villain with a really unusual motivation to him. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, like to return to that first film, I just think it works on every level. Like, I think uh, Morpheus is an iconic performance. I think Hugo Weaving is an iconic performance. I think Keanu Reeves as Neo is an iconic performance. Like, there are reasons why it entered into the culture and was so roundly parodied by literally everything. Why, you know, a couple of years later, you've got Princess Fiona in Shrek (laughs) leaping into the air and doing like a slow motion kick of a guy. Like, every action beat every shot like the dialogue like that scene that you mentioned hugo weaving interrogating morpheus i you know remember him running his head running his hands across morpheus's sweaty head and sticking the sweat (laughs) up his nose it's the stench of the place if there is such a thing like you know like there's very few films which i think fire on just every cylinder across the board is that 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 first mm-hmm. film does but with reloaded like so much of my objection to it at the time was just like uh, there is a brief mention of zion in the first film which is described as the last human city close to the core where it's still warm and in my head i instantly <laughs> pictured like a cool sci-fi city like a like blade runner or you know like like what what the star wars prequels were doing basically like big shining gleaming lights tall buildings but underground that seemed really cool and when it turned out to just be a series of caves i was like well that's not cool i've been in caves in like (laughs) when i've been on holiday in wales (laughs) caves aren't that cool i've been to wookie hole (laughs) Caves are only cool if Batman's in them. Batman's not in these cool <laughs> caves. Just these these weird semi naked sweaty kids. Um, and so much of my response was just on those like quite adolescent terms, which is why I think it holds up better now, viewing it as an adult. They are very. And, I mean, they're very adolescent movies, and I mean that as a compliment. You know, they're like they're absolutely movies that appear to be born of getting really stoned with your mates. Um, and coming up with you know that sweet movie or RPG module that you're going to make, um, and they're kind of you know they're adolescent in that they're kind of they're sort of full of ideas, none of which ever truly conclude. Um, I would argue beyond a certain point, um, and I think the Machowskis have probably made a career out of making films about ideas that don't quite conclude or don't quite round themselves up after the first Matrix movie, um, and I think that's 
you know, I, I actually think that's sort of to their credit, really, because <laughs> no one else yeah. was making movies like that at the time. You know, there's a car chase in The Matrix Reloaded. There doesn't need to be a car chase in that movie. It doesn't need to be anything in that movie because we're in The Matrix. It's a simulated reality. Nothing matters. And Neo is kind of rising above it all at a rate of knots. But, you know, there's, they wanted to have a sweet action sequence with people jumping between cars and, you know, a big lorry fight. And it, it kind of, it really works for it. I mean, maybe that's just a, an oversimplistic point, but it, it does seem to kind of, makes sense to me that they are kind of adolescent in a way well nobody told them that they had to have a, a dramatic moment in the third film be based around how wobbly a wheelbarrow might or might not be <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's talk more about revolutions because we yeah, don't want to lose revolutions in this yeah yeah because i feel like re- like reloaded the message is oh it's a bit complicated isn't it and then it feels like revolutions is more like but what if it was a robot fighting war movie? <laughs> like it feels like it's less about making it complicated and more about just wouldn't it be cool if they had mechs now? Uh, and I'm on board with that. Yeah, like, I'm absolutely fine with that. The that is to apparently, the yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean the so they were they were filmed at the same time. They did come out within six months of each other, if I remember right. Wasn't yeah. it like May and November that year they came out? Yeah. It was like the first time they were. I can remember a film being split up like that. And I, I, it was funny rewatching them lately because I felt like for the first time in my life, I watched Reload and it was like, I understand what's being said here. <laughs> and I've seen that film so many times and I don't think I really fully kind of like felt comfortable with every line in it. And I felt that way about re, uh, Revolutions this time as well. Although I think it's, it's the, the weakest of the three. Um, but I, I feel like it's at some point you. So this is the thing, and this is definitely something that could support a segue into the new film at some point, or maybe into how, how we get into the new film, which is, I feel like one thing that's interesting about the matrix and, and Jamie, you mentioned this notion of it being the generation star Wars. one, one reason, one way in which that is demonstrably true is the, uh, the techno, like the the technological advancements it heralded, in, in, in its, in, you know, in, in, you know, in terms of special effects, in terms of movie making, the expectation, the bar it raised in terms of what action films could or should look like, etc. And I think uh, as Star Wars did, and um, although in this case it's sort of on the cusp of you know digital cinema and, and, and CG and, and what all that entails. And I think when that happens, it seems to be the pattern that there are kind of two threads running in parallel. One is like. Uh, the expectation that each new film will similarly raise that particular bar, that particular technical bar or creative bar, um, alongside what happens to the characters, right? And, you know, you see this sort of very much as like the the project that was the Star Wars prequels, which were contemporary to these films, was very much, I you know, really my thought on it is they were very much more driven by answering a technical question like what does a Star Wars movie look like in 1999 with all of the technology available and less interested in what does a Star Wars story look like in 1999. And I think that's the reason that they hit the issues that I believe that they have. Um, you know, no one needed Dex's diner, but George Lucas could make Dex's diner. And so he did not to get off that subject, but, and I feel like the matrix sequels are interesting because they also have the same pattern, right? The CG gets slightly strange. Revolutions is definitely the most notable one in terms of like, them stretching for things in their in their uh presentation which are impressive and actually hold up like a lot of the zion defense scenes still really hold up but are kind of marching forward really steadfastly on the line of like we just got to keep making showing you things you've never seen before 
while at the same time trying to hang a story off that with some meaning. And actually, I think they do to, for my money. Like, I care for some reason when I'm watching the, like, when the, you know, the defense of Zion comes down to pairs of attractive but grubby people given one rocket launcher and told to crawl around in some tubes until they can shoot them down a big drilling machine <laughs> like that whole sequence is like pure star wars to me for various reasons it's pure battle of hearth or something like that um very star wars in the sense that it also does that classic star wars thing of like we're going to follow a character you don't even know what they're called but wow they shot a rocket um and i i'm kind of there the whole time like even joking about um i've forgotten i get him confused with mouse it's not mouse mouse is in the first movie and dies um the the young character who gives neo a spoon um yeah i know who you mean um, but i don't remember their name either spoon boy spoon boy um spoon boy and grumpy captain as like a little relationship that spun up for that film can spoon boy and grumpy captain forge a relation mutual respect in time to stop the bad squids from coming through the big door the answer is kinder and i'm in for the whole hmm. ride like um i love and the other thing i love about those films actually to draw a point because it will become relevant is niobe i think she's a great character i think yeah. those, whole, those sequences are all really good and because i'm off on one apparently something that struck me re-watching it is that was a uh, a notably uh, and wonderfully diverse and progressive progressively yep. cast movie f- not just for its time f- it would be so now frankly yeah. like the the um like the the foregrounding of like women of, and people of color in positions of power in zion as an as opposed to the matrix is right there in front of you it's it's full on the text of those films um and uh i think it was what fucking 2002 and uh, they deserve yep. a, a ton of credit for that i think it's it's um there's so many great kind of performances and characters just in that set in my opinion there's I, really... one, I mean, it's not a film I like at all, really. But there's one moment um, which is called back to in the newer movie, uh, which is the moment when Neo and and uh, and Trinity see the see the sky. They fly their little spaceship out above mm. the cloud layer, and they see the sky. It's just glorious. <laughs> it's just a glorious moment. Uh, very yeah. beautiful. Very well executed. You know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to point that out because I when that was sort of re- referenced in the Muir movie, I kind of remembered the feeling of that moment and how, you know, how good it felt. They're so good at coming up with those kinds of images. Um, but like, in, I mean, Jamie, you just said you didn't like Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> how can you not like Commando Grumpy? Um, I, like, I, I, yeah, I agree with you about the, the, the casting choices. And I, I think I like the characters. I like, you know, Commander Grumpy's, I can't remember the character's name, but he's played by Harry Lennox, I think it is, who's great. Niobe's great. Um, and, like, the bits of that film that don't work for me are, I'm, this might be a scene that's in Reloaded, but there are, like, old leaders of Scion basically pontificating while looking at machines giving slightly dull cod philosophy takes about Yeah they get like Cornell West in, don't they, to come and, and pontificate uh, about stuff. <laughs> no one cares how it works as long as it works is the line I remember. And maybe it's a better line than I'm giving it credit for because I still remember it twenty years later, although I've seen the film since, so maybe it's just that. But um, a lot of the scenes like really drag the pacing of the film mm. down, I feel like. And a lot of the stuff around Neo's powers now maybe work in the real world and Agent Smith is maybe now in this 
person who's in the real world and this person who's an actor I've never seen in anything, anything else. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, he doing was possessed like, by Hugo Weaving. <laughs> yeah, he's doing a really weirdly good Hugo yeah. Weaving impression. <laughs> and why is that? And even now, I'll be honest, I couldn't tell you. Like, I couldn't, I can't resolve that. Like, I feel like I understand everything else that's going on in all four of these films. Other than that, I'd probably need to watch them again and just really pay attention to that one plot point. And it's, even yeah, then, I'm not dude, convinced it work, that, it, that it pays off. It's so tricky because I am so much more of an... I was such an arsehole when I saw those films. Like, 17 Rod <laughs> Jamie. 17, 18 Rod Jamie was such a dickhead. And, like, he's inside me right now saying... You know, and what he wants to say to you is to stop trying to please you and say to you, like, you know, the ma- the first Matrix films is a, is a masterpiece because it gives you all these ideas inside this amazing action sequence, which is action movie, which is up and down in less than two hours and, and kicks you out of the cinema kind, of cinema kind of dancing for joy with all the, the kind of fun of it. And then the sequels are these leaden, idea-heavy kind of philosophical exercises where nothing really matters and and everything is just sort of endlessly circuitous, uh, you know, back onto itself in a sort of infinite regress of, of kind of, you know, just, well, we're making the sequels now, so we better kind of, you know, we don't want to commit to anything too strongly. You know, that's, that's kind of what I want to say to you, but I will admit that the last time I saw those movies, I think, was at the cinema when I saw them. So it's like, uh, it's hardly up-to-date information. And I was I so, I had so low, low tolerance back then for people bullshitting around because, I, you know, I wanted to be Tarantino. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of vibe. But Jamie, that's why those films are good. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. Those those films, in some sort of rambling, circuitous way, um, are for people who would subsequently like every other Wachowski film, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think me and Graham both are. So in some ways, and I don't know what the cause and effect is there. Like I don't know if I love Jupiter Ascending because I love something fundamental about the the, the crazy, bloated kind of overthinky films um that they have made or if like the matrix reprogrammed me to think that that's kind of a very matrixy question if you think about it um you know uh and and so like because i could watch when we when we saw them this time around i could see pip having exactly the same bristling at the same thing right every time neo talks to the oracle and she sort of smiles and she looks at a cookie (laughs) and then she looks back at him and says you want to know if you've already done it or if you're thinking about doing it, or if it's happened to somebody else. And he goes, uh? And she goes, hmm, I thought so. <laughs> And the scene ends. And like, and I could watch Pip, like, just like, what the fuck is this? Like, just like, actually turning inside out. And then she'd look over to me, and I was nodding thoughtfully. And she's like, oh, God, it's got him. Like, it's... <laughs> Hugo Weaving has phoned out of the television and possessed Chris as well now. Um, <laughs> like, um, but I, 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 yeah, there's something about that I find very satisfying, but I also mm. agree that it, I mean, to be honest, Jamie, it feels a little bit like, um, I feel like it's a tr- it's the voice of those movies in the same way that maybe we, we, when we were talking about Midnight Mass, we identify like the Flanagan voice, right? I think they have a very specific like Wachowski voice, which is a deeply acquired taste at a certain point. Um, and also, I think they're a big baggy mess. <laughs> and I think those two <laughs> things are like slightly overlapping, but I love them more than I don't. I think, no, particularly. I feel like 
most sequels to big blockbuster hits are inessential in some way. And like maybe the Star Wars films, at least the original trilogy, are the exception to this, where I think there's like a a real story for the characters that does does require maybe all three to tell the full arc. But if you watch the Alien films or Terminator, which I still think are the closest comparisons, mm. like those sequels do just feel like narratively inessential. Like they're trying to recreate what the first movies in those series achieved. But you can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> like not with the sequel. A, it's such a huge problem because you've you've basically you've climbed this mountain in watching Alien or uh, you know, I'm going to say the first two Star Wars movies comprise one of these kind of acts. And what the the what the the subsequent films sort of say is kind of all right, back you go then. You know, do, do <laughs> yeah. that again. And like that's why I think the Last Jedi is, for my money, one of the very very best sequels yeah. ever made because what it does is yeah. it engages with that and it says, yeah. yes, you are going back through this same stuff again, but let's actually think about what that means. Um, yeah. Exactly, and like and I Matrix, love the... Matrix Resurrected does something similar, probably. I think. Yeah, I love the last Last Jedi, and it's doing. Yeah, I think the same thing that essentially all the Matrix sequels do, which is, what if we pop this thing up on blocks, <laughs> uh, pop the hood, and see what's going on inside, and think really hard about why it is you like the things in this that you like, and take it apart and show it to you, and say, hmm, maybe you should feel bad about the fact that you like these bits. <laughs> Yeah, I think well, I think that's it's interesting. I'm glad that comparison came up because I was going to bring it up with regards to resurrection specifically when we get to it. But what I would say, and I'd be, I really want to know, Jamie, what you'd make of Reloaded now, particularly, because for me, I think it's very inexpert in in handling it. But it feels like that spirit entering the series, right? That spirit of as Graham says, mm. kind of like deconstruction enters the series with Reloaded. Oh, sorry, with yeah, with Reloaded, I think, um, down to its name, like you know, like yeah. they, yeah. you know, and. And the disc- and that and something that I think is maybe we should just maybe we should just start to approach this particular threshold into spoiler town. But I feel like the one thing I find fascinating about it is the reasons that it makes people feel uncomfortable are so transparently obvious because they're so odd. Like the orgasm cake, Monica Bellucci's whole thing, um, the rave scene, the and all the rest of it. But I see them as sort of like um, really wonderfully earnest and meant in yeah. a way that like you know to to take the point like i love the last jedi it's it's my second favorite star wars film i think but there are still sequences in it that i feel like are a bit kind of um fall a bit flat for me like the uh the racehorse escape sequence um i can kind of get what's being gestured at but it feels sort of um not insincere but like it's sort of taking place in a slightly different universe to the rest of that movie in some ways yeah. whereas with reloaded specifically like it's all, it's so discordant and strange that maybe this is a weird way to put it, but I fully believe that that like uh, that Lana and Lily Wachowski like meant every moment of that, right? That there's like a really cohesive and very felt, very personal sense of like this is what is great about a rave, <laughs> you know, to that thing. <laughs> whereas, uh, whereas just to belabor this instinct, I don't think Ryan Johnson hates horse racing. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, but I really don't, I don't think he's there at like entry race course going like fuck this. This is where it starts. This is where the revolution begins, and it begins with the horses. <laughs> um, there is a, there is an earnestness to all of Wachowski's work, um, not just the Matrix films, but all their other films, that I think is why 
some people really hate it and also at the same yeah. time is like underestimated like i think we'll come back to this but some of the response to resurrections takes it as being insincere when actually i think no it's just the most sincere thing you've ever seen in your life but we'll, co- we'll come back to that should we talk a little bit about the development of yeah uh, i think it's, before we before we yeah, dive definitely. in because i i feel like it's sort of integral to understanding the film so like Obviously, Matrix original Matrix films came out in ninety nine and two thousand and two and two thousand three maybe or thereabouts, um, and I think the story of the making of those films is quite interesting in itself. Um, but I'm not going to go into it because we don't have that time because we've been going for over an hour now and we haven't actually talked about the film that we were here to talk about. Um, but like every year or so, Warner Brothers would have a meeting with the Wachowskis and say, "Hey." Do you want to do you want to make some more Matrix films? And they would say no. They had no interest in going back to that particular world. They were doing other stuff. Some of it successful commercially, some of it not. But they they didn't want to do it. And they basically been having that meeting for close to twenty years. When Zach Penn, screenwriter, um, had an idea for a Matrix movie and wanted to make it and pitched it to Warner Brothers. Um, or at the very least, like thought, wanted to make a Matrix film. Like he, he. I don't know if you're familiar with Zach Penn, but he's a screenwriter and he's done a lot of work on various superhero movies and and various big blockbusters and that sort of stuff. He's 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 credited on a lot of screenplays. And so off the back of that, Warner Brothers went to the Wachowskis and said, "Look, we're gonna make this. F- like if you say no this time, we're gonna make a Matrix film." without you anyway because Warner Brothers own it they did the original movies and they own it they can do that if they want um, and around about that time uh, the Wachowski's parents passed away and I don't feel like I'm bringing this stuff up but like this is stuff that Lana Wachowski has talked about in interviews uh, their parents passed away quite close to one another and she'd always hated the idea of going back to the matrix and and like revisiting that story she thought the story of neo and trinity were were done at the end of revolutions and you watch those films the story's pretty well done but after in grief essentially she started to find it comforting to go back and think about these characters from her past to think about neo and trinity specifically and so from that, essentially, came up with this idea for a movie which explores, like, nostalgia and its, its power to comfort us and the allure of that and the way it's warped by commercialism and capitalism, but also, like, its, its genuine power. And I think that informs a lot, <laughs> essentially, of what this film actually is. And that is a very good segue to talking about this film. I think if that doesn't kind of like intrigue you to see it, then I genuinely would. And maybe one thing we should do before we cross the the spoiler wall, because we've done this previously, I think, is just sort of, I guess, go around and like say, you know, uh, I guess, would you recommend it? Like as in quick, quick thoughts, like quick spoiler free. What was your reaction to the movie? I had an uncertain reaction to it initially, but I, I am very fond of it and I had a great time throughout. I'm desperate to see it again. How about you, Jamie? So I watched it, um, I think it was the first thing I watched after the recent birth of a small person into my life. And 
uh, I absolutely adored it. I watched it at like two in the morning. <laughs> um, I really, really, I really, really enjoyed it. I did slightly worry that going back to it, I would like it less because, you know, the sort of state of mind at the time. And I did like it slightly less. However, I think it's still, there's still something about it, something very specific about it that I think is really worth experiencing. We talk about that after Spoiler Ball, but yeah, I think it's definitely yeah. worth a watch, if not essential. How about you, Graham? I think if you've seen the first three Matrix films, then yes, it's essential to watch it. I would definitely recommend it. If you haven't seen them, then I am less sure. I think I, I'm maybe more similar to you, Chris, in that when I first saw it, I had a somewhat uncertain response to it. I think on the level of craft, I was quite negative about it, but I still had like a wholly enjoyable time watching it. And then the more I've thought about it, some of the kind of niggling complaints have faded in my memory, uh, and I like it a lot more now. Cool. We should get into it, which means that it's time for some sort of break or transition that, I don't know, someone will put in probably when I'm done saying the sentence. But yeah, after this point, we're going to talk about Matrix Resurrections in detail. We're going to go through the film and spoil it thoroughly. You've been warned enough time now. Let's do it. Well, we've definitely been through some kind of spoiler gate, I guess. Look, we're on the other side of it now. We can say as much as we want. We've travelled through the looking glass, Chris. Mm. I'm made of metal ball bearings now. I'm floating around. <laughs> I'm extremely old. <laughs> How's your hair, Graham? Uh, it's like, which way? Which character am I? <laughs> I was going to say it's long and grey, but hang on. I think I thought Chris was Niobe, but I think actually he might uh, be no, Thomas yeah. Anderson's <laughs> image. No, I, I was going to be Niobe, but now maybe I'm. My, my, I'm trapped in a loveless marriage to Graham's stunt double. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's a weird one. I like. I don't want to say it's so bad it's good because that's not quite where I'm coming from. However, I will say that there is so much about The Matrix Resurrections that just doesn't work or make sense or have any place in the movie at all. There are plot lines that don't pay off. There are huge logical inconsistencies there's characters that arrive and don't have any place to do anything there are you know like a doubling of beats you know this doubling of characters where you have two characters serving essentially the same purpose there's like shortcuts taken narratively the action sequences aren't any good uh and it's kind of <laughs> it's very very uneven However, <laughs> I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I think, and this is basically my only point about the movie, I enjoyed it because it was earnest and heartfelt and hopeful. And the fact that it comes from this very specific place with Lana Wachowski talking about, you know, her parents dying and this, was, this movie being a way that she could sort of resurrect a, a couple from her past um, and that they could be happy again together that shines through all the kind of squiffiness in the movie, that sense of things and the relationship between Neo and, and uh, Trinity is what makes the film really good, I think. And I forgive it all that other crazy stuff. There's a moment right at the end of the movie and spoilers are off. So I'm just going to say it where it's, it's, you know, they've, they've, they've won, 
they've won the mission uh, and they're back in reality. And Trinity is is waking up um, and you see her as she really is. You know, she's she's not matrixified. She's older and her hair's shorter and stuff like that. And she and Neo embrace. And there's a shot of him just running his hand down her arm um, and sort of touching her sort of for the first time for a very long time. The chemistry between them is so believable and so electric. Um, and it's such a raw moment of, of kind of humanity between them, which is something I've never seen in a Matrix movie, really. Or perhaps I have and, and, and not noticed it before, as you were <laughs> saying. But for me, and I know I'm sort of skipping right to the end there, but ultimately there's so much crazy in the film, but the the sense of hope and the sense of love being a, this kind of powerful force for good in the world, which I think hopefully it is, um, just it, it papers over all those crazy, crazy cracks. Yeah, I feel similarly about it. I had like I had quite an uncomfortable experience where I saw it in the cinema, um, but I saw it in uh, the what's called the director's lounge at our local cinema for dickheads. <laughs> um, uh, we have you know one of those sofas and meals cinemas, um, and uh, the director's lounge is where small films go when no one wants to see them. Uh, can't you know? Um, so I saw um, last night in Soho. There was the previous film I saw in that room, and it's literally a room with like six sofas in it, basically facing a pretty big screen. But like you've probably know someone who's got a bigger TV, probably. Um, but it's a nice little environment to see a movie in. I was very uncomfortable when I saw last night in Soho there because I was the only person there not in a single group. The rest of it was like four friends out for a movie. Um, and I felt like I was just sitting in someone else's house. Um, but anyway, I digress. The point is I was there and there was like a guy who was there by himself who just really wanted to make conversation all the way before the film. So I went in this immediately agitated, like, oh God, uh, kind of like try and settle in, couldn't relax kind of way. And then the whole film just kept making me uncomfortable because the my higher brain functions couldn't switch off and there's so many things i want to dig into it's wild tonal swerves it's like the bits where it becomes meta and then the bits where it seems just like uh incoherent or kind of completely out like thing and and again there's a doubling the fact that i kept waiting for the the action to take off and it never does and and wanting and waiting to find out if that was a deliberate stylistic decision um or if it wasn't uh and then but through all of this um having a consistently good time because enjoying the presence of those characters enough enjoying a lot of the new characters very much um but being aware that i was being made to feel uncomfortable by a film that was also telling me to was also trying to soothe me with nostalgia while also telling me that nostalgia was bad and then having to at the end kind of uh facing the same scenes that jamie's just described try and determine whether to me neo and trinity is a pairing that fills me with hope or nostalgia and how to feel about that hmm. and being left thinking kind of both and then i was so ambivalent and i want to talk about ambivalence with that film i mean it's real meaning right like being really on two two states with something all the way through to the end and then right at the end as the new version of uh, Wake Up kicked in with a female vocalist, I was just fucking grinning ear to ear. And there was like some sort of like, and I, I kind of realized at that point something that I suspected the whole time, which is that I'd been watching someone making the movie they, they wanted to make. And I think that has a quality of its own. 
and because that like when when I talk about loving the sequels because of what I believe is their their felt earnestness, their sort of the fact that all of the things in them are in there for a reason and they mean something to somebody, whether they really work as motifs or not. I felt the same way about this one in the end. And then I uh, sat through the credits and the post credits both confirmed that and then put this other spin on it where it's like, and you don't have to think that every, every decision this person makes is good. (laughs) 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 And it's like, and so my, my feeling coming out of it was like, I, the matrix formed, you know, uh, sort of person who kind of has had these stories in their heads for 22 years. I'm still not quite sure what I got out of it. However, I came out of it like delighted for Lana Wachowski, which is like, <laughs> I think like it's not on the, it's, it's not maybe like a back of the box note for the DVD. If they still make those, you know, <laughs> like you'll be happy for the people who did this, but I came out, I came out of it like, good for you, Keanu. Good for you, Lana, you know, like, um, and the few carry like just kind of like yeah i i'll see myself out i'm glad you had a great time um <laughs> how about you guys? i mean i feel like i i mean i mentioned this before but i'm a big fan of the wachowskis and all their work and i feel <laughs> privileged essentially that they continue to make stuff and and lily wachowski i should say is not involved in this um this film and sort of seems at this point like maybe she's just retired from the entertainment industry she wasn't involved with the second season of sensei for example so it's just lana wachowski but i i love all all of their work and i love the matrix and i'm just appreciative of the fact that i'm 20 years older and i get to watch another matrix film (laughs) with these characters (laughs) yeah Uh, and obviously that's like part of what the film is commenting on in terms of its its deconstruction or or analysis of of nostalgia as a force but also yeah i'm likewise just happy for all involved but i would say more happy for myself like i'm at a point in my life or maybe this is not a point in my life but speaking more to my taste but i really loved tarantino's movies as a teenager and i still like them now and really respect his work but if he stopped making movies tomorrow, I wouldn't really care. And I feel right. the same way broadly about most <laughs> directors. Uh, and the Wachowskis or Lana Wachowski is like an exception. Like I would be really sad if tomorrow she stopped making things. And it seems like with every semi-flop <laughs> they've made, there's always a risk of, oh no, but, but what if people won't keep giving them ridiculous budgets to make absurd passion <laughs> projects that are just like wholly earnest, uh, completely cringy, like fan fiction that you would read on AO3. Like what if, what if that won't exist anymore? Don't like, forget I, all the crazy horniness. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I can, you can get the crazy horniness from Tarantino as well. It's just a different flavor. Um, <laughs> But it's, uh, so I'm just like, I'm really, I am likewise really pleased for them, but I'm really pleased for myself that this thing exists. Yeah, actually, I, I agree with you for what it's worth. I'm now having, I'm now realizing what it is that I got out of it, which was just this again. Like, <laughs> well, let's, let's, uh, let's, yeah, let's, let's dial into it. talk about the plot. So um, it's, 
I mean, it's, uh, it opens with it. <laughs> Everything you need to know about the plot of this film is encompassed in the noise Graham just made. <laughs> I'm like winding backwards like through the layers. Okay, like it opens with essentially more or less a shot-for-shot recreation of the beginning of the first Matrix film. Um, some of the setting details are different, but otherwise, like the framing of the shots, the characters, it is car pulling up outside what seems like a CD hotel, a police officer sat on a, on a car outside who says, you know, they're bringing her down now <laughs> um, because he sent a team up to, to go get Trinity uh, and being told that no lieutenant, your men are already dead. Um, and then you get inside and you have like a recreation of the Trinity fight scene. There's like some different camera angles on it, but it's otherwise like the same choreography. But you come to realize that that's not Trinity. That's not Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, and it starts to peel back the layers. And uh, it does this through this, this new character called Bugs, who I love <laughs> yeah. really this is a really great character played by jessica henwick who has been great in a bunch of things um she was in game of thrones briefly has, in, in not a great part um, she has the great honor i think of being the best thing in a series of train wrecks like yeah she's, she's the best thing in iron fist <laughs> she's the best thing in iron fist she's i mean the maybe best the thing only in the dawn scenes thing. of game of thrones um uh, she's not the best thing in this, though. or is she? Hmm. She has the best, mm. the best hair. I think she's the best. She has the best sunglasses, <laughs> which is important in the in the world of the Matrix. In the but sunny, like, sunny I, world of the Matrix. I, I really like the character. I really like the performance, and I really like Jessica Henwick because she had the choice. She was auditioning for two roles. She was auditioning for a part in the Matrix. Uh, Resurrections, and she was auditioning for a part in Shang-Chi, the Marvel movie. She was going to be um, the main character's sister. Oh, that huh. was the role she was auditioning for. I don't know if she was actually offered it, but she was basically told, if you go up for one of these roles, you can't go up for the other one. Like, you can't be cast as both of these, and we don't want to go through the process of, like, of auditioning you and, like, wanting you and then finding you got the other part and you took that one instead. And so, like, before she had either part, she had to choose which part she wanted. Do you want to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or do you want to be in the fourth Matrix <laughs> sequel? And she chose the Matrix sequel. Like, that, that makes... That's the coolest decision anyone has yeah. ever made. She's like my favorite person on Earth. <laughs> Did it, was it funny to anyone else that she was red-pilled by Neo in this movie whilst working as a window cleaner? <laughs> Well, oh, oh God! Don't don't open this rabbit hole for me, Jamie. Because not only that, she was working at the window cleaner at the Game Awards after party. <laughs> that's not that's a joke. You... That's in the film. There's one of my layers. notes. One of my notes for this film is: Is Jeff Keighley real? <laughs> there's, two, there's two layers. There's more layers to this as well. So, like Lana Wachowski has told a story in interviews of. I will br- very briefly head into serious territory of essentially being suicidal as a teenager and coming with a plan to kill herself by jumping off a building. And jumping off a building is obviously like core imagery to all of the Matrix films. And um, she she to- told a story about 
on the way to the building that she planned to jump off, she locked eyes with a person, just like an old man on the street, she described it as, and had like a moment of human connection looking into the eyes of this complete stranger that snapped her out of the plan that she had, and she went home instead. And so that scene in The Matrix Resurrections, as bizarre as it is, is like wholly sincere and based on personal experience for Lana Wachowski. But the only way Uh, she can have that moment recreated in that moment is to have her... I mean, I I get that that is a... a But then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then the I've, I've, got, I've got an answer for that as well because like window cleaners are a recurring motif now within the matrix because they in are, the yeah. first matrix film when thomas anderson is having a, a meeting with his shit heel boss at the technology company he works for he is repeatedly distracted by the window cleaners outside the window that are using their chamois or <laughs> whatever like the window cleaning brush that you use to like streak down the glass and like the camera <laughs> repeatedly cuts away to it and it's, it is like that moment is like the the mirror images in this film back to the first film particularly but also the sequels are numerous and they go down to that level of just like really minute detail like action sequence that happen during sprinklers going off or in <laughs> fact window cleaners but I, I really love the character of Bugs and we're introduced to her, and she is witnessing. Basically, she's outside of the scene. She's witnessing it, and she's talking to her operator. And this is the first thing that we learn has essentially changed about the Matrix. It used to be that the operator was just a guy on your ship, on the phone, but now he's actually visible within the scenes. And I think that's a really cool change. And, you know, she it seems like a person... Essentially, this is the this is the Jason Segel Muppets movie thing, where the Jason Segel... A, a fine Matrix sequel in its own right, <laughs> can I add? <laughs> the Jason Segel Muppet, Muppet movie, which is, like, framed as it is years later, and they are big Muppets fans, because the Muppets exist within the Muppets. And actually, like, the 1970s original Muppets... Is a really meta movie. The Muppets is a weirdly good analogy for the Matrix series. It is. I'm not joking. It is. (laughs) I'm not joking either. Um, Like that first Matrix, the first Muppets movie. Sorry, I almost said the first Matrix movie. The first Muppets movie is about them making the film that you're watching, Um, and like it's it's a it's a road trip movie about them traveling across the country, and it ends with them sitting down at a cinema to watch the film that you just watched. And there are points at which they get lost, and in order to find their way, they check. The script, <laughs> which they're carrying with them. Um, Does this mean that baseballs also takes place in the uh, <laughs> Matrix Cinematic Universe? Uh, I, I think all are welcome. Um, <laughs> so that's 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 a, a slight tangent. Um, yeah, we're only on minute two of the movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about for half an hour. <laughs> but like, um, um, yeah. So the operator is now existent within the world. And Bugs is essentially like she's a she essentially comes across as like a fan of the Matrix. Like she knows who Trinity is, she knows who Neo is. She says had this encounter with um, Thomas Anderson within the Matrix, which was her moment where she seemed to wake up and be able to leave the Matrix. Um, but she knows the legend of the first film, and she spots that there is a difference in what she is viewing between the story as it was told to her and what she is perceiving in front of her. And what you eventually find out is that what she is viewing is like a video game within the Matrix, 
created by a character who is I don't created know if he's by, called created Tom, by Thomas uh, Anderson. Yeah, yeah, he's created by Thomas Anderson, who is Keanu Reeves, who within this new version of the Matrix is essentially Ken Levine. He's a, he's like an auteur game developer, and he created The Matrix, a video game, which was massively successful and a series of sequels. He's now working on a new game called Binary, but in the background, he's been running this, what he refers to as a model, which is just a recurring program um, featuring AI, which he created, which he has created a new AI, which is a combination of his impression of Morpheus and Agent Smith, and he's running it again and again through the scenario to see if it essentially develops some form of sentience. Um, you know, and maybe that's what Ken Levine's doing. Who knows? He's been, it's been a while <laughs> since he shipped something. Can I? Yeah. Does, does anyone I, want to step in? I've been talking a lot. I really about. do. I do want to step in because so something about it that at this point in the movie started to make me increasingly uncomfortable. So you know, in the Matrix One where Mouse has this whole monologue and it's a brilliant monologue about did the machines know what chicken tasted tastes like? Yeah. Or is that why it tastes like everything? I feel yeah. like, is it meta in the sense that the machines have no idea what a video game is? <laughs> or was this a film made in 2021? <laughs> because it really, like, it consistently, and I know, I know it's it's kind of pedantic and I don't want to, I don't want to fucking cinema sing, sins bing this, but it did consistently, like, I kind of loved the notion of Thomas Anderson, frustrated game developer, trying to recreate something that feels real to him initially. And then as the film goes on, it becomes more and more important that he's made these games, The Matrix, but that those games are the films, The Matrix. They they get projected onto screens, etc. Yeah. Like it it like um it became like there's a level of unreality introduced to the movie, which is like, well, that's not what a game is. Like, it's just not like, that's a, that's a film. Do films exist? Like, is it? <laughs> and, and this culminated in the bit towards the end of the film. And I know we're bouncing around where, uh, Trinity sits down opposite Thomas Anderson. And she's starting to twig that something's up in this reality that's been created for them. And she says, I went home last night and I played your games. All of them, <laughs> Harry. All of them. How long were these games? Were they like three-hour indie walking experiences? Because I don't think that would. I don't think that would sustain a kind of like Zenimax scale <laughs> operation with a corporate structure pictured. And like, and then the scene where it's like, you know, it won. It, they literally call it out. They say like it won a game award in 1999. There weren't any game <laughs> awards in 1999, but it's the trophy from the game awards. The actual <laughs> trophy. Did you pick up on that, Graham? That it's the actual Game Awards. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, um, the actual, my... the actual one. So and like, so I just want to. I don't want to dwell on this too long. But just, to, I'm sat there in my fancy fucking cinema, spinning out because the thick, like, because I'm thinking, like, I know for a fact that, like, I'm pretty sure that you know the 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 production apparatus, the actual Game Awards, is pretty pally with a lot of people involved through lines like the cyberpunk promotion and so on. So maybe there's some kind of deal here. Is this marketing for the Game Awards? Like. <laughs> Like what the fuck is going on? And then I was on I was on edge for like three or three to five minutes, worried that what some it, games personality or another was going to show up. And also, what I would I would say that the the game company itself. I mean, I worked on a TV show called Kiss Me First, Kiss Me Worst, and uh, that is like the kind of kiddie Matrix. It's on Netflix if you want to watch it. I suggest you don't. However, working with a team of people who didn't know what the hell they were talking about with video games and being the one video game literate person there. 
um, I was getting some real anxiety from the uh, the way that the video game company was portrayed and the way the employees were portrayed. It's almost like someone had gone like, Roy Clark, we love your work on Last of the Summer Wine and uh, Keeping Up Appearances. <laughs> Do you want to come and spend a couple of days writing dialogue for these video game programmers um, in our new Matrix movie? That's how kind of totally yeah. out to me. But, and that's, but the, yeah. the thing, on, the thing is, the, the Wachowskis were really integral to all the Matrix games, including Enter the Matrix and Path of Neo. They wrote like scripts for them, and like some of like the one I, I, is it Path of Neo that has Niobe as the main character, but that, mm. that's got cutscenes in it that were filmed at the same time as they were filming Reloaded and Revolutions, like live action cutscenes actually filmed. So I think I think first of all you can assume that. Basically, these games had FMV cutscenes in them. <laughs> That's why they're being projected on screen. But what I'm really hearing here is that you wanted them to project into the Matrix and have like a low poly Niobe no. model on screen. No, Graham, because they went halfway there. The, so I was talking to a friend about this after I saw the film. The version of this that would have twisted this from like a moment of discomfort that might be deliberate, might be meta or something, to something that I would th- thought would have been transcendental genius if the thing that Thomas Anderson in the film had created was not the Matrix, but the Matrix Online, which if I don't know if you remember this, but they said that felt that game was going to be canon, right? That was one yeah. of their ways of offloading responsibility for subsequent Matrix stories. They said that the MMO was canon. I loved that MMO for what it's worth. And canonically, and I love this, and I, we're bouncing around the film at this point. In the film, when Niobe is describing uh, how Morpheus passed away, she leaves the door open for his death in the Matrix Online to remain canon. In which case, <laughs> in which case, they they leave the door open for big nerds like me to hold on to the dream that was the bit where Morpheus was mugged by a ghost <laughs> and died in an alleyway. Yeah. yeah, I've seen I've seen the cutscenes of that. Yeah, I didn't play the game, but I've, but I've like, watched it on YouTube. I think if they had done that, right, because as soon as they do that transition, and to return to the film more specifically, so when they do that transition to, like, he's a game developer, I get that tingle of, like, oh, boy, here we go. They're being brave. When they name drop Warner Brothers, like, these sorts of, mm. these wheels are turning. I, I loved it. I was like, I can't believe they're fucking doing this. It's it's a kind of amazing um, fuck you slash uh, bit of fun. Um, for me, the thing that would have capped it up, but for me, that thing of, like, these, these weren't, these are games you're showing us other films was like a, a note of incongruity that took me back out of it and kept me in tension with that response. Whereas had they at that point just like shown footage from the actual matrix games, I would have been delighted by that. I think that would have been, I think it just would have helped the point <laughs> land to me. So, Maybe yeah. I'm so something. The, the plot reason for Neo to be doing this games is that he's kind of, you know, being put to work to kind of recreating this story for, for reasons that become clear later, yeah, but it's a kind of psychodramatic exercise for humanity at large. This is the kind of version of Neo. So he's he's retelling this story over and over again, right? For um, Trinity, who turns out to be just as important, right? She's just really into motorbikes. <laughs> I also thought was really funny that, like, you know, Neo is this kind of, you know, amazing computer game designer taking over the world. And she's just like, yeah, I just like motorbikes. They're great. <laughs> and that is the task that she's been set to for an infinite amount of time. <laughs> Well, there is like, yeah, to make it explicit, like the the video game company that Thomas Anderson is, he's not, it doesn't seem to be the head of it, but maybe he's the founder, is owned by Warner Brothers, who, as I mentioned, are the owners of the Matrix. And he's basically told, you have to make another Matrix game. 
by a very well coiffed Christina Ritchie with some excellent hair in the one scene she's in. Yes, uh, she gets like really good billing for someone who's in the movie for like four minutes. <laughs> and fair play, um, but it's it's uh, initially it's Jonathan Groff um, who is like if if Thomas Anderson is the artistic uh, guy, then Jonathan Groff is the evil businessman basically, and he's the the person who tells him initially Warner Brothers are making us make a new Matrix game. You've got to go back to the well. Thomas Anderson really doesn't want to do this. He's extremely depressed about this. He's also, uh, like, had at some point in his past, we learn some sort of psychotic break. He tried to jump off the roof of the building. He's in therapy, and his therapist is played by Neil Patrick Harris. And I think those two choices of Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris are both fantastic casting choices for reasons we'll discover as the film goes on. Although Jonathan Groff, that was initially meant to be Hugo Weaving. Mm. So like earlier in this film, before this point, we've met the video game version of Morpheus, um, who is not played by Lawrence Fishburne. That was a deliberate casting choice to cast a younger Morpheus because he's a video game Morpheus. Whereas Jonathan Groff as Agent Smith, as he becomes uh, about a third of the way through the movie, that was meant to be Hugo Weaving, but just scheduling conflicts made it not possible, partly due to COVID. Because that's the other thing, like, which is slightly relevant to the development of this film, is that they started filming it and then production was essentially shut down because of COVID. And that limited some of what they could do in terms of shooting it because they needed to observe, like, social distancing and and you know the ability of certain actors to travel and all this sort of stuff it's very weird i mean jonathan groff doesn't look that dissimilar from neil patrick harris right <laughs> jonathan groff is playing agent smith but he's also sort of playing hugo weaving playing agent smith as well and they mm. literally cut to shots of him and yeah. also morpheus is a combination of morpheus and agent smith as yeah. well so it's a real muddle of people and i it's... i like all of those people I, I i think neil patrick harris is particularly good and i think all the performances are great but like the film does not know what to do with um groff as no myth it, it's really confused about what he's doing there and who he is and why we should care you know i think the, uh, which, is, which is tricky the original, because the pop hinges on him you know yeah i think there are moments where that original casting is really obvious because there are moments where it will cut to him reveal him in a scene and it almost like hangs on him like it wants you to go like oh fuck it's him or just to take his presence as inherently important in some way but i don't think it quite uh, to, to jamie's point i don't think it quite earns that anyway graham you were saying was I? <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris doesn't have good hair. I mean, he does have good hair, but he has really good glasses, I'll say. Good Everyone in this film has good glasses. He's but got like, my favourite. He's got blue-rimmed uh, sort of NHS specs, which I like very much. See, I like Bugs' glasses the best, as I said, where they're like the frame of the glasses sort of like intersects through the middle of them <laughs> rather than like the line being across the top it seems really impractical but they look really cool um but like the, the, the casting of groff and neil patrick harris i agree with you that what they're doing with agent smith doesn't work and it and it's a lot to take in at the beginning of the film like every character is several layers of okay that's morpheus but it's not morpheus it's also morpheus from a video game and it's morpheus but also <laughs> it's agent smith because i guess agent smith is the part of the personality which makes him good of breaking free from his programming and he needs to be good from breaking free from that in order to escape the video game so he can appear in the matrix 
but it's the different matrix now <laughs> and and so on and so on and so on. And he's not like and the guy who's supposed to be Morpheus is not like Morpheus at all. He's got no, a completely not different really. personality. He's like he's... wacky wacky Morpheus after the divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like he, he makes a, he comments early on that, you know, like when he describes to yeah, he gets pulled out of the video game by Bucks, essentially, and then meets Thomas Anderson in the bathroom of the video game developer that he runs. And and he's been sent there essentially to like break Thomas Anderson out, as Morpheus does in the original movie, but he just fucks it up. Like that's the thing. Like mm. he as you say, he is Morpheus after the divorce, and he just he's a really shit Morpheus. And he's just like <laughs> swaggering around. He comes across as like maybe he's been drinking and he freaks Thomas Anderson the hell out, basically. Um and I kind of love it <laughs> for that reason. Like mm. that stuff actually really works for me. Jonathan Groff as Agent Smith is a little bit less clear. Like, I like the fact... So there was a thing where basically Agent Smith is... no longer wants to destroy Neo, as he does in the original trilogy. He's come to realize that they have almost a symbiotic relationship, or or at least that they are connected in some way. And in this instance, the, the enemy of his enemy is, is his friend. And his enemy is the analyst, who is, of course, Neil Patrick Harris, who is... You know, within the Matrix is Tom Anderson, Thomas Anderson's therapist, but he is the replacement for the architect. Because we learn that what has happened is because, uh, the, I mean, this is really intrinsically tied to the original trilogy, which is why I feel like you probably need to have seen the first three films. But the end mm-hmm. of the third film, the thing that changes is they don't destroy the Matrix but they, they come to a truce with the machines. And the rules of the truce are that anyone who wants to leave the Matrix can. So it's not like forced liberation, where everyone is just has to come out of the Matrix whether they want to or not, but there is some choice involved in the process. The result of this is that lots of people do leave the Matrix, and the machines, we learn, no longer have enough power. And so war essentially breaks out between the machines. There has been peace for a long time between the humans and the machines, but the machines are now fighting one another over resources. So a new matrix is created. The architect, who is the old Colonel Sanders patriarchal figure from the original trilogy, is dismissed. And in his place is Neil Patrick Harris as the analyst. And the crux of it, of the metaphor of the whole thing, is essentially that is that Neil Patrick Harris is a social media algorithm, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the key to this new matrix is that both Neil and Trinity, who died at the end of the third film, but who have been recreated in the flesh and plugged back into their pink bubblegum slime pods. They they essentially power this new matrix by existing in a, a state of eternal yearning. They must be close to one another, but never too close. And their their constant state of I think there's a there's a line that the analyst says at one point where he says, The worse we treat you, the more we manipulate you, the more energy you produce. Essentially, the analyst has created a matrix where with fewer people, 
then the original Matrix, or, or at the very least the previous Matrix, is featured in the last in the trilogy of films. It's it's more productive in terms of energy output, but keeping everyone in this state of un like mm. not quite fulfilling what would make them happy. And the film is an exploration of that. The film is like a condemnation of social media and those algorithms, and it's an exploration of nostalgia's role in that, in keeping people in this state of yearning for something they can't have, not taking action that would actually make them happy um, versus the actual benefits of this. Because this is the other thing is that just like Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions, which made the initial, the, the original Matrix film more complicated and said, oh, you know, actually uh, the one is just a, another system of control. We created the one. There's been thousands of them or an infinite number of them throughout history. The Matrix just repeats this process over and over again, all this sort of stuff. The Matrix um, Resurrections is very concerned with the same thing of saying, all of this is just systems of control. Like the blue pill and red pill, it dismantles it. <laughs> like uh, the, the existence of the film as like an appealing thing to you as an audience member, it dismantles it. And like, I want to touch on that because some of the negative response I've seen to this film has been the f- has been this feeling of this film is saying I'm stupid because I want the first film again. Like it's it's first of all the film is saying that it doesn't need to exist because explicitly like uh Warner Brothers is making them make it and they don't want to make it like that's part of that's a plot point within the thing and also um it's you know it seems to be at certain points critical of their urge for nostalgia and wanting to go back to it but this is why I come back to the things I've said before of this is a 100% earnest movie and it is a 100% personal movie which is which is rooted in Lana Wachowski's personal experiences. It's not a film which is saying you are stupid because you want the nostalgic comfort or you want a recreation of that first Matrix film. It is a film which say, it's saying that like there are downsides to it particularly where those impulses inter- interact with capitalism but also, isn't it lovely to just dip in to old characters that you love, like a warm bath, and feel comforted by it? Like, that's okay. And that is, like, an actual, like, genuine benefit <laughs> of existence and making these things and creativity and all that sort of stuff. Um Yeah. yeah it's It's interesting because the film, you know, the film has kind of... I think that's very well said. I think the film, you know, has three very distinct packs. You have Neo as Mr. Video Game Man. Then you have Neo going to visit the city of Io. Is that what it was called? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then a kind of return to the uh, return to the Matrix. So it follows pretty closely the the kind of map that the first movie in particular lays out. Um, you know, including the kind of idea of you know the sort of being rescued from the slime pods and all that sort of stuff. And the thing that the, the thread that keeps it going, the constant, and I think, again, it, Carrie-Anne Moss does such good work in this movie. I think she's the best, gives the best performance in the movie. I think mm-hmm. when she's acting with Keanu Reeves, she makes him good as well. Like, the scenes between them make sense. 
the film clicks into focus, even though she's describing how she's played all of played played his games uh, in between motorbikes. Uh, uh, you know that 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 is as I was saying that is such a true relationship that they have, and it gives the film the only structure it has really <laughs> beyond the kind of you know basic movements of it. It gives the film a direction um, uh, that that kind of for me is is it saving grace? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think Keanu Reeves is actually good throughout this. And I mm. don't feel that way about every Keanu Reeves performance, but I, I do think he's a good actor and I think he's good in this. But yeah, I agree with you about Carrie Ann Moss. Like, I, I mean, we've talked about The Matrix as, as an adolescent <laughs> movie and I saw that film as an adolescent, but I don't feel like that's informing my opinion of Carrie Ann Moss. I think she's genuinely a fabulous actor and she is deserving of a, Gillian Anderson style modern renaissance essentially like I don't know if either of you watched the Jessica Jones Marvel series yeah where where um Carrie Ann Moss plays a lawyer who employs Mm. um Jessica Jones over the course of those three series she's fantastic in it she's genuinely a really great actress and I am so thrilled that she is so centered in this film um, she doesn't get the lion's share of the screen time. It's still focused on Neo, but a, a lot of the crux of it is based around Trinity, and I'm, I'm really happy about that. Um, I, yeah, I, I think yeah, Carrie Ann Moss is, is great in this. I think, um, yeah, and, and to further the, the Keanu point, like I think um, it's funny having having seen this right after finishing Cyberpunk, which I think is a genuinely great performance by him throughout, like at length, Um I feel like he returns to that role quite consciously and quite deliberately um, in a way that I, I really enjoy. It felt very kind of appropriate, um, which I can back up because I don't know if you've seen Bill and Ted face the music. Um, I haven't actually. Right. I really liked it. And one of the reasons I really liked it is it's also a very intelligent return by Keanu Reeves to an iconic Keanu Reeves role. And that film without spoilers also has a, uh, another uh, actor basically doing a Keanu Reeves impression for the whole film, or more specifically, a like Bill and Ted era Keanu Reeves impression. Hmm. It is also dead spot on. So I think I think the the Keanu Reeves meme of the kind of of his acting, I think, can be laid to rest now somewhat. I think it's a mode that can be picked up and put down for effect. Um, although I do agree that he really like. I think this is the thing for me is he, and this is maybe something I'd like to link this into is he is playing a tired uncertain person in this film and it's uh, it's a performance that like it's not a massive energetic performance particularly for the first half of the film because that's the point and i find it an interesting contrast with the first film which is about a kind of you know a, a young dejected um directionless person who doesn't know who he is or what to want and finds that and this is a very different story. It's about someone who has had success and is, you know, in middle age and, and rediscovering those things, which necessarily has like a really distinctly different energy. And I both really enjoy it for that and also can identify the points where I would maybe prefer a new Matrix film to explore the same sort of journey or the same feelings hmm. for the point of view of a younger character or someone um slightly different now that's not to say that they should have done i think the, the personal nature of this movie for the reasons you've already outlined grown out on really well 
um, I mean, it could only be this story, and I completely accept that. Um, so much to say that I had sort of, for me, the most uncom- the most sort of awkward feeling moments in the film really are really where Neo Thomas Anderson um, does Matrix things again. And I think that feels like a very, and I'd be, I, I want to kind of move to the subject of action because for me, it's really striking that like, you know, to talk to what we were talking about earlier with regards to like these films operating on several tracks, right? Like consistently uh, in the running, in the period where the original films were being made, people were going to Matrix films to see action cinema, or at least Kung Fu cinema, moved ahead a few technological notches, if not always creative notches or stylistic notches. Um, it's my view that this film isn't interested in that at all. Um, uh, you know, it it sort of it names bullet time within itself as literally as a marketing device, kind of calls mm. it out. It's one of its many meta layers and, and disregards it. Um, it has that kind of uncomfortable moment when the analyst says, you know, what's better than bullet time? This and, and, and explicitly voices that tech, that sort of like uh, technological arms race approach to cinema as something that comes only from the voice of the villain and specifically the algorithm, the thing that keeps you sustained, the thing that's really empty and um, crass. And also crucially, it's actual fight scenes, which it has, which have stakes for the characters connected in them, which are fight scenes within the context of the film, not within the meta layer, are not great. They, they, you know, you see better hand-to-hand combat or martial arts on TV now, frankly. Mm. And that has sort of set easily with me because I could totally see the point that it's not the point anymore. Um, but it really struck me that as the, as the movie goes on, I was like, well, you, you, there's no way they do the matrix without the matrix's most iconic scene to the extent that it's half remake, half reboot, half commentary, critical deconstruction. The, the, the scene in question I would identify as the lobby scene and then right towards the end, you get this moment where after one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the film, which I want to return to, the kind of car chase slash suicide jumper kind of mm. sequence, uh, uh, Neo and Trinity rush into a lobby and rush straight to the lift and go up in the lift. <laughs> <laughs> Facing no issue whatsoever. And I realized at that moment, like, oh, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Oh, and I, I think I'm still processing that feeling because they should be arrested. It's terrible. What a terrible decision. <laughs> in, a post John, yeah. in a post-John Wick world, they cannot yeah. excuse. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but No, no, please do. But I don't think that's a, an incorrect response because for me, that's where we hit this really like um, interesting boundary between what uh, like Lana Wachowski wants to make what the audience expects, what it's reasonable for what the audience to expect, what it's reasonable to challenge the audience on. And I think this is where The Last Jedi comparison becomes, again, really, really, really pointed. Because the films have had similar backlashes. You have failed to make something I'm attached to being badass, badass in the way that I want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we didn't, you know, uh, spoilers for The Last Jedi, apologies. If Luke was just force projecting himself and he was an illusion then we didn't get a cool Luke action scene. You've robbed us of something we deserve. I think that's a kind of toxic response that undermines the fact that that movie makes a really interesting decision about how Luke might express power in his, you know, veterancy. Um, It really means something. I don't know what it means 
for Neo and Trinity to forego fighting. Or if they really wanted to make a point about them kind of having moved on from that, about it not being what defines them, then the line, I still know Kung Fu, falls really flat for me. Mm. Similarly, if if we want to move them on from the power that previously defined them, ending the film with really the, the point of the end of the, well, the, the kind of the, 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 not the point, but the punchline of the film being Trinity can fly to, um, also underwhelms because it, it, it feels like it, it subverts and uh, builds upon the same thing at the same time. It's like both extending the roof and digging under the foundations <laughs> concurrently, which I find fascinating, but I'm not sure if it's successful or not in, in, in purely those terms, because I think at my core, I think the action scenes in the first Matrix film have artistic merit. I think they they express something about the character. I think they're exciting. I think they create a feeling. It can be a really adolescent feeling, and I would completely accept that. But I don't feel it replaces them with anything other than slightly lackluster action scenes. Mm. And that I have a slightly uncomfortable relationship with that. It's interesting because obviously there is a montage in this where they are trying to define what was the appeal of the Matrix games. And all these characters have different ideas. You know, the Matrix, what does it mean to people? It means bullet time. It means Kung Fu. It means action and mayhem. It means ideas. It means philosophy. It's a trans allegory. It's a crypto-politics allegory or or something like that that someone else says. And, like, they pick through these different ideas that Thomas Anderson is being inundated with. And it feels very much like this is what Lana Wachowski has been listening to for the last 23 years of, of mm. meetings with Warner Brothers, maybe, where they've been trying to compel her to make a, to make a sequel or just random meetings with people and fans in, in coffee shops and that sort of stuff. And what Lana Wachowski said in interviews um, is that she used to, or they used to back then, really be focused on storyboarding everything. It's worth saying that, you know, the Matrix was kind of their first script. <laughs> like, not right. quite, because they'd written a film called Assassins, but um, that got heavily rewritten before it was actually made. So they got a story by credit on it. And then they wrote The Matrix on spec, and it was like, put every idea we've got into it. And so that's, you know, it, it's a completely insane script to write because it, it's incorporating sci-fi and cyberpunk and kung fu and anime, and it's obviously big budget, and they had no reputation to get a movie like that made. Um, but like off the back of that script, uh, Warner Brothers were like, oh, there's something here. <laughs> um, but then they went away and made another movie called Bound, which they wrote and directed, which was much smaller budget, which became like the kind of addition for for the ma- for doing The Matrix. And they got off the back of that permission to go do The Matrix, budget to go do The Matrix. And it's this, obviously, this really maximalist thing. But it was in that intervening period between them writing it in like 95, 96 and filming it in 99 storyboarded to within an inch of its life. Every shot of the film was planned out. Um, uh, And what Lana Wachowski has said is that she doesn't like to work that way anymore. She much prefers getting actors on set, having a script, but 
kind of seeing what happens and having a more natural process on set when she's making stuff. Which is a terrible way to make an action movie. It is. Yeah, it's I mean, sort with of the Matrix, is. they had they found, I mean they had some genius guy that they found who was the who later went on to do, you know do the kung fu in um Crouching Tiger and was a kind of veteran but quite mm. completely obscure in the west. And because they were nerds who knew all the best kung fu movies, they were able to get this guy in who just, you know, turned in you know, some absolutely spectacular stuff. And they just have, which has, just hasn't bothered with this one. And it's, there's just no excuse for it. There's no excuse but this, for it. I watched bits of it today. Like I rewatched parts of it. I watched it for the first time a few weeks ago and I rewatched it today. And parts of it, the choreography, I don't think is actually the problem. I think the problem is how is, how, how is it framed? Where is the camera positioned? Yeah. And then how, well rehearsed are the actors because there is a thing where the initial original matrix film they did like six months of training before they filmed so the the martial arts looks really good even in situations where the camera is relatively static for a long period of time Mm -hmm. and the way that you disguise bad kung fu a lot of the time is you cut you know, you cut on the punch, you cut, you cut, cut. And the this Matrix film, Matrix Resurrections, it cuts a lot more. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that they haven't had that rehearsal time. Maybe it speaks to the fact that Keanu Reeves is 57 years old now. I mean, I've and, seen John Wick 3. He can do but stuff. He, I can do stuff, but even in John Wick, I mean, I haven't seen John Wick 3, actually. I've seen the first two, but I haven't seen the third one, so maybe it's different. But he's not doing the stuff he was doing in the Matrix trilogy. And so maybe there's an element of he just can't do it anymore. But I think a lot of it is just the framing of the action. Well, it's it's also the narrative purpose of the movie in that, you know, in these fight scenes, there's a whole bunch of people along for the ride. Like, hey, guys, we're here as well. Mm. And they're all having a fight too with the Merovingians' minions. That turns out happens (laughs) at one point. And, like, there's lots going on. The thing that's so good in the first Matrix movie, I will say, more than any of the other movies is that the intent in every given scene is always absolutely clear run fight this guy <laughs> you know it's yeah. kind of so simple whereas in i don't know who those people are who turn you know merovingians minions who turn up or like i don't actually know why neo is fighting agent smith in that scene like it's not really clear what's going on there or what yeah. he wants out of it yeah. at all and that can really hamper uh you know the direction of a fight scene because choreography cinema you know performance training all of these are in service of a plot yeah. and if you don't care then it just doesn't work anyway you know well that's that's you know what i was saying about the reloaded and revolutions before where i think like when when the burly brawl happens it's a technological marvel but i don't really know why neo is doing it like no, if you just fly, fly right away yeah, yeah <laughs> you could just fly away at the beginning and nothing would be any different whereas the the first matrix film it's that's that's not the case at all but i i think the framing of it really matters because even so like the 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 first matrix film begins with like Trinity running away from the agents and having this kind of uh, rooftop chase. And there are points where the agents open fire at Trinity, but it's framed in such a way that you know she just disappears behind a chimney at the point at which they fire, or it's just shot, like the position of the camera and the cuts make it seem like she was hard to hit at that moment. And 
all throughout this film, there are just points where like they're in a straight corridor mm. <laughs> and the agents just can't hit them for shit. And like there will be like, well, you know, bugs will flip up onto a wall and Morpheus will flip up to the ceiling. And actually that looks pretty cool. Like there's a point that there's a there's an action sequence quite early on, which utilizes the the kind of door teleport <laughs> mechanic <laughs> that reloaded introduced via the Keymaster. He's not called the Keymaster because that's, key that's a Ghostbusters thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have loved it. We're honest with Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a cool moment where like they open a door, but like the corridor they open the door into is like uh, at a different like angle, <laughs> and so they have to flip onto the floor, which is actually the ceiling from their initial perspective. And that looks really cool. And then they're running on the walls and that looks really cool. And then like the last third of the corridor, they're just running normally on the floor while like three other people at the other end of the corridor shoot at them, but seemingly can't hit them. And that happens repeatedly throughout the film. And it just deflates any sense of like threat to the, the agent's pose and turns it into like an awkward like 80s Schwarzenegger action movie of like why are all the why are all the minions such bad shots? Like this is really strange. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we all have the same problem with the action scenes essentially. So to, to I don't want to like I want to get on to talking about things I genuinely like, but I think one thing that really defines the original series for me in terms of its action, its country sequences specifically, are the amount of space they create. It seems like a kind of hallmark of that time. Uh, you, you know, one part of it is, as you say, the single shot nature of it, the fact that the actors are really well trained. The other is that, like, the one of the, you know, it's one thing to say that the, the movies pioneered the kind of, you know, bullet time stuff and the pause and sort of 360 uh, sweep uh, kind of effect. But to take that a step beyond and talk about the effect that creates, it creates a tremendous sense of space. It creates a tremendous sense of the uh, three-dimensionality of the space that the fight is taking place in, the relative position of all the people in it, the kind of vying for mastery over that 3D space, not to hang too fine a point on it, that the fights represent, right? And then that scales up and up and up and up and up until in, in Revolutions, Neo and Smith are punching holes in the rain above the city mm. right <laughs> like um the imagery that I, I still love one thing i thought that was really uh notable is how closed and confined and claustrophobic the fighting in in uh resurrections is you know pointedly like the sort of the fight in a kind of warehouse slash staircase with the merovingian surviving werewolves the very hairy merovingian i don't know if i want to go into the very hairy merovingian but maybe i do um post-lockdown Merovingian let's call them and um and you know that that fight you see what you're largely seeing is people's backs framed by doorways and frames and kind of you know very close quarters stuff which uh, you know the original movies do have some of but it lacks that sense of space and then it yeah. really struck me that the the final kind of really the final kind of action sequence of the film happens in uh a place uh that lives in my nightmares uh, a Starbucks with really deeply insufficient social distancing regulations. Yep. <laughs> just, a, just a very full Starbucks, uh, which is very uncomfortable. Um, so much so that, you know, it to me it felt, and, and obviously we talked a little bit about the impact of COVID on the movie, but it felt like, really? Like this is the set you've got? Like the awkward scene where Smith and Neo's final 
farewell really takes place behind the bar of the Starbucks because it's the only part of the Starbucks <laughs> left that isn't full of men. <laughs> like, there are, you, there are a lot of coffee shops in this movie. It's just a case. It's, it's, it's just it's just one coffee shop. It's the same coffee shop. Same did, you, did you see its name? What's it oh, called? Uh, stim- stimulate or simulate? S- simulate. 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 It's the perfect That's pun. That's so good. I saw. Did you? Did you? Uh, I only read about it today, but did you pick up on the extremely meta thing with the noodles? No, not, not okay. I'll tell you the very, very brief story because uh, it's again levels of levels. So, um, uh, in the film, when when Thomas Anderson's having his like crisis montage and he has a bath and the rest of it, there's one shot of him eating noodles. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the restaurant he is eating noodles in is the one, literally, the one that Neo points to in the first Matrix when he's being driven there. to the Oracle. I sweet noodles there, really good noodles. Moreover. It's the noodle restaurant that both that Keanu Reeves and I think the uh, Canaran Marcelano Wachowski used to go to a ton when they were filming that film. Hmm. So that restaurant to this day has a photo hanging in it of uh, the proprietors of the restaurant and young Keanu Reeves uh, taken at the time when they were filming The Matrix, I believe. That photo is hanging next to Neo in that scene when he's eating movies in this <laughs> And so if, you, if someone freeze framed it on Reddit and zoomed in, there's young Keanu Reeves. It's 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 clever. Like it's it's, it's I don't know what it means, but like there are, there are, there's there's levels of them having fun that I'm happy for. Yeah, but there's all yeah. there's all loads of that because like Tiffany. So Trinity within the Matrix is a character called Tiffany. Her husband is literally called Chad, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is great in itself. But then the actor playing Chad is the stunt double for Keanu Reeves. And he's yeah. also called Chad uh, so, in real life. He's actually, so he's, <laughs> his actual name is Chad, but he but he's also like a fake a fake Neo essentially. Yeah. And then the, um, both Trinity and Neo within the new Matrix have like their reflection selves, and so like um, Thomas Anderson's reflection in the mirror is played by Carrie Ann Moss's real husband. Oh wow. <laughs> so uh, there's and whereas um trinity's reflection is played by james mcteague's wife and james mcteague is like i'm not sure what his role is in this film but he's like the second unit director but he's been second unit director in other wachowski's films he was co-director of cloud atlas for example um so there's all these sorts of like meta imdb <laughs> references yeah man that, that neo's true self like oh my god it's hideous it's someone who looks basically like me, a more attractive version of Jamie Britton, <laughs> the horror. <laughs> oh man, this yeah. So I feel like we're, we've we've sort of started to try and explain the plot of the film, and then fell down this really weird spiral mm. staircase, uh, which is not, but then- <laughs> which is more or less the plot of the film. Um, there's a bunch of things I- like go on, Grim. But what you were saying, you were like saying about the coffee shop, like in, although a lot of the film takes place in a coffee shop, it's in some ways the perfect setting for the film because there is something about coffee shops where you sit in them and you people watch and you maybe have a laptop and you're using their free Wi-Fi and you're working in them. Like coffee shops have become this sort of center of of yearning, haven't they? Mm. And like central to this plot is that Thomas Anderson goes to this coffee shop and if you know every day he sees Tiffany come in and sometimes they have an interaction, sometimes they don't, but he kind of like yearns from her for her from afar. 
Um, and that's like really central to the plot. So like, I don't mind that I, the action is set within that kind of environment. I think there's something that the film achieves here that is real, but I don't like. Um, maybe, but I don't think this makes the film unsuccessful, which is that line. Uh, I really like that line in the first Matrix film. I used to eat their really good noodles. Because it's that line that takes you, just brings you into, it's a nice little, the, the first one's very good for this, for grounding its sort of, you know, uh, mad premise, the, the the leaps between reality that it's asking for in things that have like practical human resonance. What did chicken taste like? I used to eat noodles there. These little points that kind of say, that, that used to be part of my life. And other things that I have been exposed to have taken me far beyond that life, right? Um, you know, and that moment Neo's being driven to the Oracle ostensibly to discover his fate. And you have this counterpoint. I used to sit there and I used to eat noodles there. And and implicitly, this is one of the many locations where Thomas Anderson in his previous life sat and thought, there has to be more to it than this, which is like the, you know, the driving kind of adolescent maybe question behind the original Matrix films. I feel like in some ways, Resurrection's being set so principally um, in a coffee shop and being specifically about the yearnings of disaffected middle-aged people in coffee shops answers <laughs> that question with there must be more to it than this with nope there's another part of that which is that sort of the first Matrix film um, this kind of sub-boss of it is Cypher and right. his thing is I've been unplugged from the Matrix and it's bullshit I don't like reality I want the lie I want to go back in I want the tasty steak. And in this film, you get to Io. Io um, is the new human city after Zion has essentially been destroyed. Io, maybe it's like 1-0, which is also binary, which is the game that Thomas Anderson is making at his video game company when he diverts in order to work on the new Matrix film. But like, um, he meets um, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, as the leader of this city. And the thing that she introduces them to is strawberries. And this is her argument essentially for why we don't want to get involved with war again, why we don't want to go piss off the machines, why we don't want to go rescue more people from the Matrix. We have bec- like we are growing strawberries down here. We've got an artificial sky. Things are pretty good. I like I like and, when and, she's sorry. I like when she's first introduced. She says that she's you know sixty years have passed, and that's long enough for her to um, realize that there's no easy solutions for things. I thought that was very yeah. an interesting line of her she's to all, introduce herself with. It's, it's yeah. It's the, there's no no easy solutions for things, but it's also that like it would be easy to depict it as oh she has grown complacent like comforts have made her weak in some way but that's not what the message of the film is the message of the film is actually again in the same way as the previous sequels complicated everything it feels like this is complicating cypher from the first film it's saying basically good tasting food is what you fight for yeah <laughs> like yeah. there has to be more to what you're fighting for than just cold hard reality and eating a big bowl of snot which is essentially what the the original matrix film argues for that there is nothing wrong with wanting the comforts of a good steak there is nothing wrong with the comforts of good strawberries there is nothing wrong with the comforts Mm. of nostalgia and like that's why again the coffee shop setting actually like fits in perfectly I think the film is making an ar- like an argument, and it is a, a more middle aged argument rather than the kind of teenaged or twenty something revolutionary argument. It is an argument for like 
what is actually going to make your life worth living after the change that you are proposing or the change that you are fighting for? Yeah, I get that. And I think that's a, I think this is the thing, like, this is why I think it's a good film ultimately is we sit, you sat there and I found myself right in the middle of this at the, the kind of the fulcrum of both the comfort and the discomfort that that provides, right? Because crucially what that gestures towards is sort of a level of acceptance of the system and finding your own place within. And that feels very kind of pointed to me, right? Like, you know, it's a question that I think anyone dealing with anything from maybe experiences of creative life in a, in a, in a, in Hollywood or a similarly structured environment to just capitalism generally has to kind of wrestle with, right? Like I exist in and I operate within the system. I derive comforts that I, I don't feel like I should be shamed for enjoying from it. And yet I have all these questions about my own agency within it uh, and my responsibilities that come from that agency and so on. And the first Matrix film specifically, but also its sequels, lay it all out in big, uh, didactic, adolescent, incomplete, incoherent detail. But at the very least, they they don't really allow for a tremendous... Well, they blur lines but they blur lines in the pursuit of kind of like, I think still trying to climb that kind of stairway towards something like maybe truth or, or something beyond that or a different way of doing things. And they end in, in compromise, but it's compromise grounded in the faith, you know, have in these characters and their connection to one another. And then the new one presents, as I have said, I think a kind of tired post-revolution version of that, where things have started to slip back in to the way they were. And where actually maybe you should just forgive yourself the odd thing. And I think that's an immensely yeah. uneasy, an, an immensely uneasy position to leave the audience in. I think it's very compelling as art. I don't think it's forthcoming with answers, but the film I think is so full of details like this, where it feels like the personal nature of it, what I think is its biggest success comes through. in I think some of the quite wry observances of the ways in which things have kind of changed and declined, like, you know, I think I, maybe I think Jamie, you said that you found it quite a hopeful film. I don't think I did, and I think thinking about it now, one of the reasons for that is, for example, um, the analyst, right? Our new architect is not only I think I think you were spot on with describing it as a social media algorithm. He's almost as soon as he's outed as a villain, he becomes wildly crass. He is incongruously sexist at parts mm. in ways that you have to see as very, very deliberate because, uh, you know, um, I, you know, frankly, it's a filmmaking team that's uh, earned a fair amount of trust when it comes to why um, sexist language would be deployed in one of their films. And to me, what that represents is that when they were making Matrix Reloaded in the 90s and, and, and early noughties, the notion of power had, you know, there was this notion of the powerful f controller figure, the the architect very literally of the, the structures of, let's say, fucking capitalism. Spoilers, that's what The Matrix probably is um, at that stage. Um, as being, you know, it's embodied in that case in a kind of old white dude who speaks He's very pa formally. Patriarchal. Patriarchal, yeah. old Santa. white dude. Cyber Santa, Santa. Cyber Colonel Santa. Sanders. Yep, all of the all of the architects of capitalism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Colonel Sanders, Santa Claus, somewhere between them. 
the uh, yes, the palliative gift giving of Santa combined with the empire building uh, a large ass of Colonel Sanders in a single figure, the architect. Um, His chicken really tastes like chicken. Yeah, indeed. His chicken <laughs> tastes like chicken. Um, or does it? Or does it instead taste <laughs> like 11 herbs and spices, one of which is your own willingness to obey? It's a um, chicken is having about itself. <laughs> exactly. Welcome to the <laughs> desert of the ch- <laughs> um, the the point I'm making is the formality with which he speaks, the the mode in which he engages. He's a gentleman, and this notion of power is coming from a position of power obeying its own rules, right? Which is actually kind of an, a, a kind of a way that the architect is described later in this film, right? As like kind of stuck in his own patterns. Um, that what is being rebelled against in those first films is a stolid, implacable power that needs to be forced to bend to allow space for new ideas, the young, new growth. Um, and is actually forced to bend both by the new growth of Neo through through his relationship with Trinity and the new growth represented by by Smith, the kind of the, you know, the to dial back to the importance of that first kind of great Smith and Morpheus scene, the, you know, you're not, you know, do you know what you are? You're a virus. And the thing that I love about the original movies is that no Smith is the virus and the revelations that start there for him allow him to become that virus. And this strange kind of meditation, all that entails, all of that crazy new organic growth tilts an old order off its axis. That's cool. The new film gives us, and this is something I really like about it. The analyst whose power comes from the fact that he is crass and changeable and petty and, at the very end of the film, quite grossly kind of malleable, like, you know, Trinity breaks some stuff off that guy for fun mm. in a way that is sort of proves how kind of like insensitive to pain he is while also being a kind of sympathetic kind of, you know, play by Neil Patrick Harris, kind of not sympathetic yeah. in the sense of you like him, sympathetic in the sense that he's human, he comes across as very human, but in a kind of gross way, he's sexist, he's, he's rude, he's crass. I think- and just, I think there's just, also, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I think like I mentioned before, I really like the casting of Neil Patrick Harris and Jonathan Groff. I think there is something about the fact of their, their image on the internet. They're both very memed men um, and they both represent a sort of extremely clean cut, very likable. Broadway, uh, very Broadway. Broad, yeah, yeah, Broadway, both singing, Broadway, yeah. very charming kind of personality. And like they are using the parts of those personalities, Neil Patrick Harris especially, which is just like off putting. Yeah. <laughs> like there is something eerie and, and unlikable about a child star who is so talented and clean cut <laughs> in and, some ways. Yeah. And, and, and I think the point the film makes with that is that these, are, like, it makes you uncomfortable. And I think one of the points it's making is almost a reflection on its on, on the, the original films is, is almost to say we were wrong to assume that this is what power, what abuse of power looks like with the original architect, mm. that actually the way the internet has evolved and, and see all of these films as transitions to a digital life in many ways, um, that what digital life looks like in 2020, you know, uh, we have been through, or 2022, fuck, fucking hell. Um, <laughs> um, um we have been through more than five years now of seeing our assumed uh, standards of conduct of people in power undermined steadily at every turn, right? Like to take that as one of the, the defining kind of uh, 
emotional journeys of this political age, right? You expect that there are certain mores or standards that get adhered to um, by those in power because you were taught that when you were growing up and you see it undermined again and again and again and again. And I really liked this pre new presentation of power within the Matrix in that way because initially it's shocking and off-putting and seems to be undermining that he's so crass and sort of braggadocious and unpleasant. And then you realize that, no, that's the way in which the power changed. It's also a way in which I think the film gestures back at itself and says, like I say, we were kind of wrong about this. And there's a naivety, or as we've put it earlier, adolescence in those original films about the way the power is presented. And that for me, like I was smiling at it because I appreciate the acuity of that statement. Partly, I found its solution to that, like not satisfactory maybe maybe i need to rewatch it maybe this is an error i need to rewatch it but the bit where you know to go, to go right to the end of the film when when neo and trinity descend on the analyst kick the shit out of him a little bit but they're in their old costumes and just kind of leave him to it promise to make changes and fly off i felt a bit like <laughs> forgive me yeah that is how gen x would feel about this <laughs> <laughs> Okay, boomer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what a rather rest of us. And then, and then, and then this is compounded, and maybe this is where I'll land it. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm happy for you. And I, I love this cover of uh, Wake Up, but, you know, again, to return to that point, I'm happy for you. And then we got to the end of the credits. And the end of the credits scene is this bit where one of Thomas Anderson's awful marketing people suggests the cat tricks. What if the Matrix but cats as a kind of credit stinger gag? And I hate everything about that because I feel like doing a credit sting is an acquiescence to a modern cinema trend that they could have happily ignored. Um, I believe it is subverting the wrong expectations and crucially in grounding the film's understanding of like what stupid people on the internet think as cat jokes, it feels like 10 years dated. Yep. And, and I was like at that point, Oh, Oh, there's the, there's the generational split, right? Like, oh, like, Lana, I came with you so far, but this joke, this joke was for you. This is a crunchy JPEG from your Facebook feed, not mine. Not mine, no. I mean, I found it, I found, I think the reason I said it was a positive movie is because, you know, you know, obviously there's more to life than Marvel movies and there's more to the media landscape than Marvel superhero movies. But those movies essentially posit this idea that there is hope in the world because when bad things happen, when the aliens come or the bad, the scientist mans decide to kill some peoples, that these five people will come and stop them and save the day. And we're supposed to kind of be inspired by that. And lots of people are very inspired by that and watching those movies and inspired by the, the struggles of these people against impossible odds. And that's not going to happen in real life. That's not that's not how things work. <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as superheroes. Um, and anyone who argues that there is is probably some sort of awful, you know, Andrew Ryan <laughs> libertarian <laughs> monster. And also those movies are often inspired by the notion of like, wouldn't it be, you know, those movies are endless sequels for the purposes of making money. And often the main creative idea behind them is like, we can do the sequel because wouldn't it be cool if Iron Man and Spider-Man we're like father and son. That's why we're making this movie and we're going to make a bunch of money and they're going to save the day and they're going to be heroes. To the extent that The Matrix Resurrection is a kind of meta sequel in that it doesn't do that. It, uh, and, and it's sort of when you're talking, Chris, it was making me thinking that I think that's one of the reasons I like it because 
it refuses not just a kind of hero's journey, but it kind of refuses its own premise. It refuses its own kind of notion mm. that a, what a sequel should be, because they're definitely not going to make any more for the time being. You know, it, it rejoices in the fact. And I think the Catrix, as much as that is a terrible joke, it is also a thing, you know, they must know that people would be in the cinema watching that and like, ooh, what's the stinger going to be? Who's going to turn up and stuff like that? And it's this crap, you know, fart, basically. Um, and it really annoyed me too. It made me feel kind of insulted. But I did appreciate in the movie, and I think that's why I felt it was positive, because it's a, it ends on a romance. It ends with, you know, one person being born aloft by the other, which a Marvel movie's never finish with you know they finish with like and the story is going to go on for as long as we can mm. milk you fuckers dry you know I mean it's interesting that this film has been in the cinemas at the same time as um, the latest Spider-Man film which is uh, without spoilers operating in a similarly nostalgic space and doing so in a very different way I'll leave it at that but um, I, I felt like it was a hopeful film I feel like Resurrections was a hopeful film because it ultimately centered that Neo and Trinity relationship in a way that the first film sort of did in a way that was easy to miss if you were a 14-year-old boy entranced by the violence and the kung fu and so on. Um, and which the the sequels like made a larger part of the, of the overriding mythos of that world. This was like just... You couldn't get more explicit about the fact that, you know, it's it's about the relationship of these two characters. Like, the analyst has a monologue where he says, I kept trying to recreate the, the Matrix by bringing back Neo, and it never worked. And then I realized I needed to bring back Trinity as well and recreate both of them. And this is an entire world powered by their relationship for one another. And obviously there is the, the just... There is a fundamental satisfaction for me in the. It's, it's it's pretty basic, but the the feminism of like now Trinity is more powerful than Neo, <laughs> and she's the one that flies and she rescues Neo and like she is the kind of leader of the pair of them this time around. Um, there's like been a common response to this, like uh, an interpretation of it, where people have said it feels like fan fiction. Um, of the matrix and i get that and like the reason for it i think is because and i i, I feel sort of similar about the two matrix sequels as well like i, I they all sort of feel like fan fiction of the first matrix film to some extent but it's born of that earnestness and like the centering of the romantic relationship it's funny i hear that i hear that criticism levied a lot that the idea of things being like fan fiction and i do kind of feel like that if you live in a culture where ideas and intellectual properties are echoed back at each other constantly and remade and reforged like stuff is gonna feel like you know fan fiction it, there's no there's no delineation rather than quality i don't think and it's kind of this this well, weird slam that people yeah have. agreed yes there's there's an emotional earnestness i feel like to fan fiction where it's sort of like indulging in subtext in a in a way that oftentimes pop culture doesn't because it would be cringeworthy if it did and like even not cringeworthy like the example is that you know you never see Han Solo and Leia fuck (laughs) (laughs) whereas Matrix Reloaded has like a really quite lengthy sex scene between Neo and Trinity intercut with the rave (laughs) and it's like that's the kind of scene that you would get in a in fan fiction normally of like obviously like 
Disney's not going to produce a Marvel movie where the romance is actually sexual in any way. It's going to be quite chaste. And then if the fans of that relationship are going to indulge themselves via the fan fiction. And the Wachowskis are always quite good in their work and saying, no, no, we will indulge you. <laughs> like the thing that you want to see, you want to see Trinity be a badass and kick a guy's ass and like cut his mouth off and call him out for his sexism and misogyny. Yep. That's just in the so, film. Graham, can I slow you down a little bit? Cause what I find really interesting is like, I don't think that is what constitutes fan fiction in the, in the, in the sense of the matrix. And I think what's really interesting about this is it, it, it calls into question that notion of fandom, right? Like, and that this is good this is good about the film i should stress fandom for a lot of fans of the matrix would be trinity not being in it at all because ooh, blah a female character and matrix and neo kicking people in the head for two hours but those people don't write fan fiction those people like the people who are like that maybe make a half-life mod but they do not write fan fiction i would argue like, they made an entire movement online yeah, but that's not fan fiction either. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, maybe yes. the yeah there is. I'm talking. I'm talking really literally fan fiction on Ao3. You go on Ao3, and it will okay. be stories focused on the romance between Neo and Trinity. Maybe stories focused on the romance between Neo and Knuckles Tank. and Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay. <laughs> I would quite like to see um, Neo shag that mad eagle robot thing. <laughs> Turn back halfway through the movie. I want to touch. I want to touch on that as well because, like, we talked about we talked about Matrix Reloaded starting that kind of journey of like making the machines more complicated than just good or bad, and with Mer- the Merovingian. And I like. I do like that the Matrix Resurrections continues that with. Uh, I think one of them is called Shibebe. <laughs> <laughs> and then then one of them I mean I thought of I thought of them as more like a XCOM style fucky snake character but yeah maybe they're more like a hawk <laughs> but yeah. one of them gives Neo a hug and he's yeah. only just met it and it's like it gives him yeah. a kind of touchy on the forehead hug it's very strange and, and Shibebe seems to be some sort of floating manatee sort of thing but I like the fact that okay like the machines now have free will or too like it 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 is added shades of gray to this world um in ways i appreciate and i like we've talked about as well about um sorry chris i feel like i interrupted you like six minutes ago and i'm still talking <laughs> it's okay about. it's all good uh, um you know we talked about the return of niobe and the merovingian but there's also the return of sati yeah who is the kid who is created in the matrix revolutions by two programs because they were in love with each other. She's essentially like pitched as within the narrative as the first program created for no like systemic reason. Just because two programs are in love, they created a new program. Uh, and Sati there, you know, returns in this car- in this film playing sort of the oracle role in that she's like a She's wise, she's a program, she exists outside of the matrix and she like points the characters on the way. And like I I, I again like I'm just thrilled <laughs> I feel uh, by uh, you know the lore returning at me <laughs> in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think like I was really pleased by that as well. I had a smile on my face. I think it was a nice kind of loop because I think it was a it sort of 
ties bone things. I think it falls into the same trap that that Jamie jested at earlier in terms of doubling of characters in the film and who could potentially fill what role. And it does end up being a very full cast by the end. Um, but again, I think it's sort of uh, to kind of try and tie a few different points together here. I think it's a it's a film that's really fascinating in some ways because I think in the conversation we just had, we've identified it's it's very hard to know what a fan of the Matrix necessarily wants. Right. Mm. That's really what I was trying to indicate. Like, yes, I accept that there are going to be hardcore Neo Trinity shippers and God knows they've had a great time. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's I think it is vital to understanding the Matrix, to understand the ways in which those original films were adopted wholesale by people who absolutely did not understand them or <laughs> very or at the very least did not have the empathy or the interest in lives unlike their own to drive any interesting conclusions from them and to you know and i think um this film's uncomfortable relationship with nostalgia where it's sort of uh, explicitly dismissing it on one hand and then embracing it wholesale on another um speaks to i think what must be a very uncertain relationship with the legacy of work that um you know I think singularly in the career of the Wachowskis has like empowered some pretty bad stuff. And so when people say it feels like fan fiction, that's a very loaded phrase. Cause as you say, fan fiction is often about people finding and really explicitly uh, explicating some emotional resonance that they've had from a piece of fiction. They have really resonated with a character or a pairing of characters. They've seen the romantic spark and they want to see it delivered. And maybe in reasons for, for whatever reason, the original showrunners or filmmakers or game makers did not deliver. Um, the, 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 the reason I called attention to the fact that I think, you know, a whole generation of matrix sort of acolytes span at least the vocabulary of a, of a series of, deeply uh tasteless movements out of the film um mm. speaks i think to its ambiguous cultural legacy and i think when those people say this film feels like fan fiction they mean a very specific kind of fan fiction uh a you know a far more kind of like uh what they're really saying in a way is that lana wachowski does not have the right to tell the story that she is telling because it does not adhere to the ideology that the original film singular has been recruited to propel, which is what we were kind of discussing at the beginning of this. And, and I think what that speaks to more than anything else, because I agree a hundred percent with Jamie that the only difference between fan fiction and fan and fiction is quality. And to that extent, it is a completely useless phrase. You might as well say, just say good fiction and bad fiction. Um, Um, is I should, yeah, I should say, I'm not using it that way. Like I, I don't make a qualitative judgment when I say fan fiction. I'm actually a fan of fan fiction, more mostly as an outsider. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying it feels like fan fiction in the sense of, as you say, it's it's making explicit an emotional subtext in the original work. Well, it's, it's going out of its way to undercut undercut the kind of structures of these things, and and to a lot because you was you mentioned it, Graham, because that was the criticism that others had leveled le- le- yeah. against the movie. And that is because it goes, it's a film that goes out of its way, as Chris was saying, to go round the houses and try and come at this from a different direction, which I think to a lot of people does seem like fan fiction because 
you know, it's not as it's not as simple as just having the two characters fight or the two characters, you know, screw. There's like a lot of movies do. These yeah, days. I mean, I think it's without wishing to oversimplify it. I think like we've referred to the original Matrix film, especially, but the trilogy as a whole, but especially the original, as adolescent. But we should maybe be more specific and say that it's it's uh, a masculine adolescence. Like, it's a film that deeply appeals to teenage boys, I feel like. And I feel like a lot of the Wachowskis' other work is designed mm. explicitly to appeal to teenage girls. I think Jupiter Ascending is. I was going to mention that. Really that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it is so clearly designed to be a fantasy for a certain type of nerdy 13 or 14 year old girl. And, like, as I you know, I'm a. I'm a 36-year-old man at this point, and I'm really bored of pop culture over-catering to me. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of my like uh, affection for the Wachowskis is that they are really going hard on, in some ways, not catering for me. <laughs> like I still, I like, I genuinely like the stuff that they're making. It does land with me. But a part of what it's appealing about it is that it's not the masculine fantasies that a lot of other people are making. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, part of the, you know, fan fiction tends to be a feminine pursuit. Like, again, that's a really broad generalization, but I'm relatively in touch with that community and that sort of thing. And it tends to be women are the people who are writing those stories and so it's not a qualitative judgment when I say this feels like fan fiction. Like, this part of the reason why I like it mm. is that it feels like fan fiction. I, well, I, I guess maybe to kind of like link the two things then, I think it kind of identifies something that's unique and kind of special about The Matrix is the position it occupies and all that. Like, one way as I would like maybe talk about the value of fan fiction is it's often, as you say, the articulation of things that typically, um, and this, I'm uh, you know, holding this lightly, typically women have found valuable in fiction that a bunch of men made for themselves, right? Where yeah. that value has emerged perhaps accidentally. See, there's all the time in game communities. Yeah. And I think there's there are several game series even where you can see um, the really positive influence that an almost in, in accidental initial fandom has had on the subsequent development of the thing. Um, I think this is a very pertinent point for The Last Jedi as well. Um which is a film that we've returned to a few times, but I think is notable because it, for the first time, uh, appears to take seriously the task of um, uh, advancing not just female specifically or women specifically, but feminine perspectives in a in a in a fantasy setup that's predominantly and and definitively masculine, um, and the Matrix sits squarely. Uh, well, no, it doesn't sit squarely. It sits ambiguously. Um, in uh, particularly those initial films, in 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 territory that, as we've talked about from many different angles, could be taken and run with in different directions by different people with different motivations. And I think you're right to identify not so much that Resurrections feels like fan fiction, but maybe to kind of land on it. I think the reason that that uh, point has emerged, not to call it a criticism, is because it has been created with the positive creative um, in, impulses that have previously caused fan fiction to emerge from other settings, films, books, etc. Yeah. Right? Like a desire to 
like oh there's a there's the edge of something here there's the fucking there's the kind of the the cut end of the roll of sellotape of something kind of more interesting here i'm going to pick at it and i'm going to pull like that that feeling rather than it being um, an imposition it's an extraction which is maybe quite a good matrix metaphor like <laughs> it is it is identifying that something wants to be free and freeing <laughs> But I think what's what's kind of pointed about this to me, and you, you raised, I feel like we've been, we've been talking for so long about this thing, um, <laughs> but um, uh, and I can keep going, but I find it really fascinating because I think more broadly at the moment, there's a lot, there's a question in the air about when you know what do, when is fan service okay? When is when is mm. giving the audience what they want a good thing? When is it a bad thing? And I think this film resurrections for me one of the reasons i've had the kind of ambivalent response that i've had to it in some ways is because i think its answer to that question is maybe not incoherent according to its own creative uh guiding star or anything like that but it's it's hard to judge what i'm going to expect whether whether to expect to be kind of um subverted or treated with nostalgia or have a story advanced or subtracted in any given scene. And I find that quite disorienting. I feel like I really need to see it again. And I would, I would contrast that, I think with the new Spider-Man, which I also don't want to say anything about, but I think does as good a job as the opposite as I could expect. And I think yeah. unearthed, unearthed the value of the opposite for me that actually I think about this a lot that my guilty pleasure remains reaction videos, not like, um, you know, one person reacts to, but like whole cinemas reacting to something or something like that. Hmm. Um, and there is still, um, something potent about moments that really engage big groups of people and rally people around something they all enjoy. I think there's danger in that as well. There's something potent yeah. about it. And I feel like the new matrix is kind of really pointed because I don't think there's a single moment in it that would land like that. I don't think there's a single moment in it that would, that is an unambiguous, hell yeah, that thing, everything is questioned, undercut. And I think that's what makes it an intelligent film. It's what makes it an interesting film. It's what makes me uneasy about saying it is. Oh, actually I'll put it this way. I think maybe the best way to put it, because I think I'm meandering beyond the point slightly. Jamie, you've spoken quite at length about like the feeling that the original Matrix film left you with, that kind of buoyant exiting the cinema, kind of bouncing with the energy of the movie as it leaves you. This doesn't feel like a film that can do that or wants to do that. No. And I still, But I still see that effect as something good. And that doesn't mean this film has to deliver it. It's just something I noted by its absence. It gives, it gives you, the, well, it, give, it gives you the memory of that feeling, but not the feeling itself, you know? <laughs> It gives you yeah. a, conjur- a conjuration of something that's now lost, um, uh, without without the actual you know un- un- uncut stuff itself, um, which is a which is a weird thing for a movie to do because most movies would go out of their way. You know, the Last Jedi ends with triumph, a really Star Warsy mm. sense of triumph. This doesn't end with that actually. It ends with. The ghost of something and and the feeling of of but a happy ghost <laughs> Casper the happy ghost you know <laughs> yeah um, which is which is weird it's very postmodern I mean remember when the Matrix came out postmodern was a word people were using about it you know <laughs> um, uh, and luckily culture has moved beyond just that as a catch-all term for all things 
um, and started using Meta instead. But like, um, uh, you know, it, it does feel nicely, you know, I think you could, what you could definitely say about it is it plays outside of the normal rule set for these things. And that is refreshing, even as so far as the movie is kind of a mess. I mean, we haven't talked about the big like <laughs> Left for Dead zombie bit at the end, which is just something yeah. for them to do for the last 20 minutes. And it does go on, you know. Um, and what's that saying about, you know, is that doing a Dawn of the Dead style commentary on, on you know, the population being mindless zombies, or is it just mindless zombies because that's what mm. they're going to be asked to do? Um, so, I mean, oh god, I've got, I've got three, <laughs> I've got three points. We're three hours in. I've got three, three, three points. points to make. Oh, let me write. Based on So, the the zombie thing at the end, like first of all, I think I feel like that's the first really striking image that this movie accomplishes like the first matrix film is nothing but striking imagery um the matrix resurrections really does feel like it's just a a pale shadow in terms of its imagery but like those people jumping out of the building crashing into the ground crunching into cars and like turning into code as they do so is there is something viscerally horrific about it yeah it's horrible um yeah, it's horrible, <laughs> and it, and it, and it, and it, and it, on that, on the, on that, on those terms, it works. Um, what I like, there is another reading of this film, which is you know we've talked about the analyst as this metaphor for a social media algorithm keeping people unhappy, keeping the people in this state of of stasis of yearning for something they can't have, but he is also literally a therapist within the fiction of the movie. Hmm. And he prescribes to Neo uh, the blue pill, which the fiction of this, these films has established is like, keeps the wool over your eyes. It keeps you in the lie. The blue pill is bullshit. Um, and then there is like, the, it's sort of, it's, you know, the previous films sort of established that any person who's not been unplugged from the matrix is a, is a potential agent. This film introduces this idea of the swarm, mm-hmm. um, which is like, you know, they, rather than turning into agents in a visible sense, they are activated and continue to attack the protagonists in a, in a relatively normal way, but more zombie-like. And that then culminates in the end with those people jumping out of out of buildings. And obviously, as we've established, like jumping off buildings is like a really... It's a personal image for Lana Wachowski, and it's a really central image for the for these series of films. But it's 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 also, you know, there is there is an interpretation of this film where imagine it if it was made by a Scientologist, <laughs> like it it could be read as like a, a condemnation of therapy and of yeah. um, of medication <laughs> to help people who are suicidal uh, and. I don't think that that's the intent of the movie, um, but it is a reading of the film, which I think is like supported by the text <laughs> in, unintentionally. I think those scenes are disturbing, frankly, and they are... Um, well, so this is what I find fascinating about them. God, this is a rabbit hole. We could keep going. Um, <laughs> like, Follow so, that rabbit, Chris. Right, yeah. the tattoo on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> What's behind this door, Jamie? It's a bad take. Um, <laughs> what Neo gains in that first movie is impunity, right? Like the the guards in the lobby don't matter, um, you know, for the reasons that you've already gone into. 
several hours ago at this point, but we went into it. Right? <laughs> like being the one allows you to ask with perfect impunity in the world, and you are free from the concern because the thing you have realized invalidates the lives of those around you, maybe, you know, who are better off because you can act with impunity. And this movie escalates that to a very uncomfortable point where the the bots or the drones that are set to stop you are not cops anymore. They are just regular people flinging themselves out of their bedroom windows. And the movie leaves open the question of like, were they ever real people or are they just bots within the matrix or what's going on? Um, and there's several like sort of um, spiraling kind of pathways there, you know, that it represents the kind of weaponization of quote unquote ordinary people on social media platforms and so on. Um, the kind of the, the further, you know, it's not just you could turn around at any point and that hot lady behind you could actually turn out to be a bad government man. It's, <laughs> you know, uh, the, you know, if it could, can you know com- contrast the 1999 matrix's idea of what catfishing meant with how we now <laughs> understand it to operate right like these moments of kind of naivety versus reality and i think consistently what this movie has to kind of interject with is a kind of like withering cynicism about where we've ended up on top of that however the movie plays very freely fast and loose with suicidal imagery right We've had to discuss mm-hmm. it in this podcast, and you've mentioned the ways in which it's obviously deeply per- personally relevant to Lana Wachowski, and that's all 100% valid. It's also entirely lifted from the movie Open Your Eyes, later remade as Vanilla Sky. You know, it's mm. that is that is the that major leap of faith. That's what that, those films are structured around. You know, it's it's funny. It's kind of a real steal from those ones, right? But I think. You know, um, the the leap of faith in the original Matrix movies is not not presented as a in a suicidal context at all. Actually, no. um, it isn't to the point when when Neo fails, he lands in the big spongy tarmac, which makes goes. <laughs> um, in this film, it gains absolutely unavoidable suicidal uh, context, um, both in terms of why Neo initially does it, and also in in subsequent terms like the that that horrific sequence at the end that kind of increasingly adds kind of disturbing real life weight to that moment and i'm really torn about it because on one side how disturbing it is i think is again one of these many kind of acts of subversion that we've been talking about on the other it plays sort of fast and loose with that imagery i think at the expense of an audience that it's not trying to upset on purpose right like we and this is where I start. This is where the subject, which might be too big for this episode, honestly, of like where do you move with the audience and where do you move against them remains really, really interesting to me, because I think you know we we, we are in an age now and uh, we are in a time now where it would be expected, and now frankly, I would expect us to put one in front of this episode where you <laughs> let people know if you're planning to talk about these subjects, right? because they have an effect on people, because they are, you know, uh, effective. Um, And I think there's probably nothing more potent if you want to talk about the Matrix's transition from a fantasy space to a more uncomfortably real space in the course of the original films and now this one, than that image. What it means to stand at the lip of the edge of a building and consider your next steps, like, which is wholly an empowering, enlightening thing in the original film. And now it's become this deeply complex and sometimes horrific thing in the new film. Um, without, I think, a sort of a sense of what the audience gets out of that subversion. And maybe this is me 
being too sensitive potentially to that but i saw it like you know in discussions i've had with other people who've seen it that those moments were disturbing they were kind of felt a bit out of whack with the tone of what they expect from the matrix and i i think what i would identify from all of this is that um I have no idea if 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 the filmmakers felt like they needed to contextualize that stuff more to not risk upsetting people necessarily if they thought that was even a duty of care that they had. But I think what this means is that a kind of rather than take the approach that maybe the bad YouTube boys would take where um you know, any subversion of their expectations is bad. It's to identify that there are both delicate and indelicate deconstructions in this film. There are bits where it works and bits where I think it doesn't. And out of a sort of what feels like a fairly gleeful um, fucking... Uh, I don't know why this image sprang to my mind, but I was just thinking, like, it's a fucking... It's a fucking Theresa May tear through a cornfield of a film. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're just running. They're just having a great time. They're free and liberated to explore the ideas they want to explore. Well, it's it's very strange because the, I think I feel like if you're in a simulated reality, if your movie is about simulated reality, then you have an opportunity to either engage with that or not. You can you can you know they apply all of these rules to it, right? They apply all these rules and characters and programs and routines and and ideas around this world but you could just as easily not do those things you know you could you you the you apply these rules to this world because it makes it make more sense on screen but there is also a sense of these things well it's not real so it doesn't matter and i mm. think it really falls down mm. in this movie when they stop thinking about what it actually means and just think oh i don't know it doesn't matter let's just get to the end of the movie and to the bit i actually care about with these two characters you know um yeah, you know, if you watch, if you watch, I watched the um, hallway shootout sequence from the original movie today, just to kind of get a sense of it. And it's weird watching it in isolation without watching the film around it, because they are just sh- totally shooting those guys on that security desk, and there's blood and everything. You know, they're yeah. dead. And like yeah. you talked about it right at the start, there, Chris, when back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, and um, you know, it's <laughs> it's um, it's it's uh, it's you have to be careful with that stuff. You have to be really careful with it because. If you just decide that, like, actually, this is beyond the purview of what I actually care about with this story, then, then you're sort of playing with fire. And I, I, I had forgotten actually quite how disturbing those moments are. And they, you know, it's, it's right. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, like, like, if you think about the vocabulary of power, God, we're going to be here all night. I'm really sorry. Vocabulary <laughs> like, of power. I, I, I keep going. <laughs> I keep going all day. Oh God. I have a a seven-week-old child in my house, and I'm still up at 11.30. Talking about the Matrix. Um, Oh, God. Um, So it's this interesting fucking, and I don't think we're going to resolve it. And honestly, I think the only way we can end this conversation that we're having (laughs) is by accepting that we can't resolve it, which is that in 1999, a really fun, interesting, technically ambitious, and I think thematically ambitious and really well, you know, conceived and, and kind of brought together film, which would subsequently be kind of revealed to hold deep personal meaning and many different axes for its creators, used as its fundamental vocabulary about what it means to seize power for yourself as part of your self-actualization, guns and kung fu. Kung fu, we've talked about a bunch, but we can probably reconcile a little bit more easily because 
you know, as a martial art, as a kind of a performed martial art in this context, it's a form of dance. It's a form of performance. We can kind of get around some of the kind of complexities inherent to violence with those ideas. However, it is also the, what do I need guns? Lots of guns. Like, and I think now we have a more critical eye to the empowerment offered by guns perhaps like john wick stands as maybe in opposition to that there are movies being made all the time that stand in opposition to that point somewhat but i agree with you jamie that that scene has uncomfortable ramifications like part of me admires it now because i wonder about you know what that same scene made today would entail i guarantee you they would not be regular old security guards but some sort of corporate super soldier or pmc or something Mm. like that um, you know, it is a pre nine eleven movie. It's worth remembering in its presentation of domestic terrorists in that case as the heroes of the story. Um, and it and to you know to to the, the movie's credit for conviction, like that is a theme that continues post you know two thousand and one and into the the movies that they made subsequently. But I think, and I don't know whether to say this is like, it's a fantasy. It's a power fantasy. And we've talked in plenty of different ways about the way that power fantasy has been co-opted by bad actors. But at the same time, we have to kind of interrogate what it is that we get out of that power fantasy, people who hopefully do not share the those other views. And I feel like that's where there's the ambivalence of this movie struggles a little bit because it neither rejects it nor wholly accepts it. It kind of sits mm. in the middle between it, where I would argue that to maybe to, to kind of draw a finer point on it, John Wick, the John Wick films are kind of, uh, I went to see John Wick 3 in the same cinema that I saw Matrix Resurrections in, and the people sat in front of us were very clearly on a first date, and it was also very clearly the worst first date anyone has ever <laughs> been on. Uh, I have not seen, so as I say, sofas in the cinema, and I watched two people on a first date, slowly between each other, chart the extremities of how far apart it is possible for two people to be on a sofa. Um, there are limits, but they explored them. <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like they really, they really got them. And then, uh, and this image has stuck with me since ever since that, um, the cinema has like a, a big wide staircase at its exit, which has a separate staircase just to the side of it which can be turned into a ramp if someone uh, with mobility needs needs to come up or or down um and these people as they left the cinema continued to be repulsed from on each other with with almost like magnetic force to the point that they would (laughs) like a gas move to the extremes of any given environment they were placed in while still moving in the same direction (laughs) to the point that when they got to the big wide staircase she took the far right tiny staircase and he took the far left staircase and that was, and it was, it was, and I think the reason for that was the extreme violence of the movie John Wick Three, which was not offered almost nothing of kind of like kind of commentary or kind of reason for any of this to happen, but just sort of this like, you know, ballet of beautifully choreographed but deeply horrible ways in which people can be killed with objects that are near Keanu Reeves, and it felt like the apotheosis of like lobby scene Keanu from the matrix in a way. And the, all those films do to an extent, like how much fun can you possibly have with Keanu Reeves shooting someone in the head? Well, it turns out kids, it's a lot, <laughs> but, but at some point it becomes a, 
uh, a form of art unto itself, and you no longer even really tried to hang a story off it. He's just doing it now. We just wound him up <laughs> and we set him going. And this and this film doesn't do that, which I think is really interesting. We talked about why already, but but it, nor does it explicitly say that that is not the way that we expect to cathartically uh, get our own back against the world in the year twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two or whatever. No, and 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 a pe- and an appeal towards pragmatism isn't an answer either. That doesn't give me anything. Like, I know you're supposed to be pragmatic. It's hard to be pragmatic. It's hard to take, you know, it's hard to value the people who are, you know, the closest to you in your life. Like, I get that that's what we should do. And I get that that's what Neo's doing. But that isn't always, you know, that isn't a, a perfect get out clause, I don't think. You know, it, it doesn't give you a, 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 it doesn't give you a, a, you know, I don't think Lana Wachowski's, necessary viewpoint on this stuff is is the way through not that i think she's even giving one that's that definitive but like you know it's a plea towards something alternative but it's not it's not the way (laughs) right well i mean i I mean i guess what the matrix films would say is that there is no single way every solution you can possibly come up with turns out to just be some other system of control yeah and like obviously the film doesn't offer the same catharsis through violence that the the original film does or to a lesser extent the sequels do but like resurrections does feel to me a more explicit rejection of some of those ideas than you're positing chris like you say it feels like i'm more of a halfway house um like it seems I mean, I mean, to come back to this suicide thing, like that's redeemed for me ultimately. Like, that's why I brought up the development story and some of the things Lana Wachowski has talked about in interviews. It's redeemed for me if I see it as, you know, like it is the concept of suicide raining down and Neo force pushing in a way <laughs> with using his hands from the back of a bike like there is that but it feels really explicit to me the fact that at no point in this film does neo touch a gun like he never once fires yeah. a weapon he doesn't yeah. even pick up a gun at any point and like given how central guns lots of guns is to that original film the fact that he doesn't touch a gun in this at all feels like a really explicit statement and rejection of of that way of resolving conflict or whatever else and like there are explicit moments where you know um uh, video game morpheus takes neo to a dojo and is like i know i'm gonna help you like awaken and take control of your life and neo is really explicitly like i don't do that anymore like he doesn't want to have a kung fu fight and his expression is no longer through a kung fu fight but more like a kind of primal scream like he does one big again force push this (laughs) is morpheus flying and knocks the building down and that's it um and like there is obviously through this like stellan expressive um emotive physical outpouring obviously but it is much less explicitly the t- kind of violence that exists in the real world uh, even to the point you know it, like he does to kung fu at certain points like there are there are fight scenes particularly the the merovingian ambush and like his fight with agent smith at that point but otherwise he broadly does just hold up his hands and gesture at things and that still feels like a, a quite a, a quite explicit thing and like you to come back to it, you mentioned before um 
you don't think that this is a kind of film that you can walk out buoyant at at the end. And to some extent, I agree. But I do wonder if that's our perspective as men of a particular age. I do feel like, I, I just come back to the fan fiction again, I feel like there is, like, if you were a, a 14-year-old girl who was afraid, who was a fan of the, the Matrix, the original film, you might come out of this one feeling buoyant. If you were a, a, a Neo-Trinity shipper, you might come out of this one buoyant. Like, I, I just feel as to me like the catharsis of it has been recentered in a way that, yeah, I agree, it doesn't quite land for me. Like, it doesn't get me get me where I live exactly. It gets me in my brain more than my heart, but I feel like it's aiming for a different kind of audience. I do wonder if it works for that different kind of audience. Listening to you say that, Graham, I think I've realized something because I agree with you 100%. I said at the start of this, I came out of, I did come out of it, point. I came out of it really happy for them, right? That's the way mm. I would put it rather than happy for me. I suspect I'm probably going to be angrily defending this film on a podcast in 10, 20 years. <laughs> um, <Same. laughs> you know what I mean? And I think I'm probably at some point on the journey there. Like, I do, like, because as you were talking, I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a really interesting point. Neo doesn't touch a gun. On the other hand, the cathartic finale of the film revolves around Carrie Ann Moss kicking a man's jaw off so <laughs> like let's not completely dial back you know what I mean and, and yeah and so you know there's but then maybe there's a deeper point there and this is the mechanism this tension is what is keeping us in this endless fucking pod factory we need to be kept a certain distance from a conclusion but never touch it in order for this to to, to happen um, I mean, I'm just taking blue pill after blue pill here, and nothing's yeah, happening. I, so. I, I, yeah, I um, thank God I have wireless headset. I've been managed to, I've managed to found a different bottle of whiskey um, to keep this going. But I've, I've literally finished my bottle of white wine. I've drunk an entire bottle of the course of this podcast. Um, Wake up! <laughs> please, anyone, just. I just, I think, uh, I'm desperate for someone to stop playing Rage Against the Machine. Um, I have one last take. I have one last take. I think I have one. You go first. What is a spoon, if not an inadequate knife? <laughs> makes you think. No, isn't um, it? Isn't it ironic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, like the uh, the uh, to back up slightly because God knows I need to. The <laughs> the. Yeah. I Let's think, peel back another layer here. Yeah, <laughs> can we find another matrix in this? Can we? Can we do it? Um, I am now chopping up blue pills with a credit card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to to dial it all the way back to the beginning, because I'm desperate to fucking land this thing. But at this point, we're flying some kind of like five D, like five D plane that that can only be judged to land across land across a couple of dimensions at a time or will always be airborne in another like it has to come down to the feeling right like that's that seems to be the point of all of this the point of all of the films is that to identify the human in the kind of the mess of impulses being presented to the point that like you know we uh the ambivalence of it all the fact that we've managed to kind of like identify all of the different ways in which the ping pong ball can kind of uh rebound uh, around this movie in terms of its meaning what it is intending to land on the way it contradicts itself the way it doubles back on itself the doubling of characters and so on 
I think what you have at the core of it, but really optimistic spin on it, is a at times very acerbic, um, and at other times just sort of cheeky, and it's sometimes daft to the point of maybe falling over slightly, um, skewering of not like a series of films, and not even particularly a culture, but the intersection of those things, i.e. the lived experience of Lana Wachowski and, and Lily Wachowski, the creators of these films, in the course of having made them, and then subsequently over the course of the last 20 years, messily intermingled with their actual lives. And I think that is a great thing to emerge as a franchise sequel. And I appreciate at this point it might be uh, repeating a point or maybe arriving at something so Pat, it doesn't even need to be said. But it foregrounds as valid the creator's feelings about their own work and about how they'd like them to be treated and how they'd like it to be remembered. At the same time, at the same time, to the fandom point, I think it's fairly ambiguous about simply leaving many conclusions to the viewer. Like the, uh, you know, we talked a bit about the kind of the way that the Wachowski movies like Jupiter Ascending and so on. Um, you know, Graham, you put it in this in the terms of, you know, um, giving, you know, handing off something to those the the teenage girls in the audience i think it's kind of beyond that i think they're imaginatively generous and i think that maybe traditionally hypothetically appeals more to to young women than young men who Mm. are conditioned to want all the answers i don't necessarily think it's gendered i think it's uh i think it's an approach to storytelling that is slightly at odds with the notion that everything needs to fit a neat structure or a neat set of well, and they've wholeheartedly tried to move the philosophy of the films along with the time that's yeah. you know gone on you know the world's changed a lot in that time and rather than just doing pure nostalgia they you know and there's there's a couple of novelists writing on working on the script of this you know there's obviously a real effort to deal into the into the substance of the way the world's changed in the last 20 odd years and that means that the film's quite mad but it's boring, you know, it's, I mean, and and that has been my main feeling of the last few years as well. You know, I'm never bored. I'm horrified. I'm confused. (laughs) You know, Um, I'm I'm asking serious questions of myself, but I'm not bored. Um. Yeah. um, Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and I think maybe that is, that is where I would leave my own take on it. That like, it's an extremely resonant film. And it feels like a very intelligently written or con- conceived film, both from an emotional point of view and maybe from a theoretical standpoint as well. Um, it's a total fucking mess, <laughs> but so is the world. <laughs> and and it uh, raises just as many questions as it uh, pretends to answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've got I've got two final thoughts. One one is easy. Uh, At one point in this film, the character called Bugs says to another character, what's up, Doc? Uh, And I think that alone makes it movie of the year. Zing. The other other thing is that everything that this movie does, I think Sense8 does better. I think Sense8 works as a really explicit response to the original Matrix film. Um, if you don't know it, Sense8 is a Wachowski-written and directed Netflix television series. They did it with J. Michael Straczynski, who was the writer and creator of Babylon 5. I'm laughing as I say that out loud, because <laughs> uh, for a certain kind of person, that's a selling point. Um, for other people, not so much. 
Um, but it's, it, Sense8 was a, it was a series that had a five-year plan and it basically got cancelled after its second series and then got like a Christmas special to wrap it up. And it's it's a really uneven show. Um, the first five or six episodes or so especially are really slow, really repetitive um, before it gets going. But the concept of it is essentially that there are these eight people who are spread across the world and they are all interlinked. They are all able to share senses with one another, but also skills. And so it becomes this kind of story of like, um, it's a bit like lost, you know, it was, it was, you know, it's, it's grounded in some of the same, some of the same ideas as lost and certainly like mystery storytelling, like, like drip feeding revelations to you. But it, it's this story where of these eight different characters with very, very different lives from very different backgrounds, but at certain points they can see one another, they can hear one another, they can talk to one another, they can feel what each other are feeling. And they can use the skills that they each other they each other have. And so if they, you know, if the if the South African bus driver gets himself into a bit of a jam, he can borrow the skills of the Korean martial artist and he can do kung fu to fight in his way out of it. And it's it's in the, like the original Matrix film, as we've talked about, it's like the ascendancy of its characters particularly as protagonist is wrapped up in this idea that you can just like rationalize your way out of a situation. Like if you just subscribe to the right subreddit (laughs) or watch the right YouTube videos, you can really just learn any skill you want in an instant in your bedroom and think your way out of your problems. And I think Matrix Res- Resurrection's Neil Patrick Harris actually uses the word sheeple, but the original does, Matrix yeah. film is, you know, is is pretty explicit about these people are sheep, you're woke, that means you can kill them. Whereas Sense8, the skills that you gain are grounded in your connectedness with other people. You know, and uh, through this it, it explores the idea that these eight people who are psychically linked, they have a they have their actual biological parents. They also have a mother who's like psychically gave birth to them. They are all connected. There are there are like pansexual orgies in this, where they're all like you know just by the fact that they're interlinked psychically, um, they are they are having sexual experiences together. Or two of them, like one of them is having a sexual experience, and all the others can feel it. Like it, it takes some of the ideas of the Matrix sequels, like those mm. rave scenes, and really runs with them. And it grounds it, the empowerment of its characters in a fundamental connectedness with their fellow women and men. And in that way, it works as like a response and a criticism and a critique to the original Matrix film. And like, like I say, it's a really uneven TV show, but it has moments which I think are as fulfilling as you know that give you that feeling of catharsis and sometimes it's wrapped up in in violence and sometimes it's not sometimes it's um them all just singing a three non-blonde song together <laughs> in different parts of the world and like like from a production point of view it's it's remarkable because it really is filmed on location in eight different locations around the world iceland and london and america and south africa and and um 
somewhere in Asia. I think it's Korea, but it might not be. Um, you know, like so, like from that point of view, it is really remarkable. It has these transcendent moments and these cathartic moments, and these moments are sometimes wrapped up in kung fu violence, which is really well choreographed and really impressively shot. But without the nihilism, without any of the like elements that were misinterpreted of from the Matrix, like you know, and the Matrix was misinterpreted instantly. We've talked about red pills, but like. Columbine was like a year or two after the Matrix came out and was blamed apart in part on the Matrix. Like it was instantly misinterpreted. And like Sensei feels like a, a better version in some ways of the Matrix Resurrection sequel. Like it's 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 freed from that need to be like a, to fulfill the nostalgic urge of its audience to deal with like what is the Matrix as a film or as a property or what the audience wants from it is freed from all of that in order to just focus on something a little bit more pure. And I think for that reason, it gets to that level of catharsis. Um, like I said, a really uneven show, but like if if you've watched Matrix Resurrections and enjoyed it, I recommend going and watching Sense8 on Netflix. What are your concluding thoughts, Jamie? It's interesting that they chose to make a Matrix movie in this in in this year. You know, it's I mean it kind of makes sense, but it's also, you know, I could have would have completely understood them not doing it, you know, and <laughs> them never returning to it because it's not like necessarily the world is crying out for such a thing. I wasn't crying out for a Matrix movie. I was I was pleased to watch it. And I guess it's kind of you know, it's good. It keeps things interesting is the thing. And and you know, I think that's kind of it, it, you know, it's good that this came out and June has come out recently as well. And there is still a market, clearly, for people to make kind of weird, spiky, slight, you know, I didn't even like June that much, but I'm very glad it's there, you know, and it's, mm. I guess that's kind of where I am, really. Well, we need to be is asleep, I suspect, yeah. at this point. <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I feel like there's probably no no satisfactory conclusion to this we could necessarily draw. So what I would suggest instead is that we all simply uh, fly up towards the camera and then it will just end. Um, someone will need to yell, come on. But other than that, we're good. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening. If you've joined us through this exploration of The Matrix and what it meant to us and what this new film means, um, through its kind of many different angles of meaning. Uh, obviously, if this is the... Uh, I always find, find it weird doing outros for lock-ins, but, you know, obviously this is a lock-in. This is an opportunity for us to dig deep into a specific subject. We're back next week with a regular episode of The Crate and Crowbar, and then the week after with another lock-in, and so on and so on. Uh, thank you, as ever, to our Patreon supporters who uh, permit this uh, and enable it. Uh, you can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. This episode and others like it are available on our YouTube at youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. We have a Discord channel where discussion can happen. Uh, if you want to keep this chat going, boy, that's the place to be. <laughs> Journey inside the, your own matrix online at createandcrowbar.com and look for the hyperlink that will take you to our Discord channel. A, a kind of web two expression of many of the ideas already discussed on this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's it in terms of uh, outro preamble. I've been Chris Thurston. I've been Jamie Britton. And I've been Graham Smith. 
Come on. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody.